these seven churches actually existed in history. So when uh, John wrote these seven epistles, these seven churches actually existed at that time. Uh, also, these seven churches together, uh, they uh, prefigure the entire history of the church. So as we've seen, Ephesus was at the um, kind of end of the apostolic age. Uh, Smyrna uh, was with the, uh, the suffering church during the period of persecution under the Roman Empire. Uh, with Pergamos, you start to see the union of the church with the world, and that eventually develops into Thyatira, which exists to, to this day as the Roman Catholic Church. With Sardis, we have the, um, the, the, the various um, denominations in Protestantism and the state churches. Um, and then uh, today we're covering Philadelphia, which uh, actually symbolizes the recovered church. And um, what we'll cover next week is Laodicea, which is when the recovered church becomes degraded. So uh, one of the things that, that, so the second statement is that these seven churches all together they prefigure the history, the entire course of church history. Um, the third statement that we want to make is that uh, the, the conditions of each of these seven churches exist simultaneously throughout the course of church history. And that's why we can apply the conditions of each of these churches to our own situation. So uh, what happened in Ephesus is still applicable to us today. What happened in uh, Pergamos or in Sardis is also applicable to us today. And as we will see, what happened with Philadelphia is very much applicable uh, to us today. So uh, I think we're going to read the verses and Trevor is going <clears> to <throat> take it from there. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's me. Um, so, and boom. Okay, so these are the verses for today Philadelphia, Revelation 3 7 through 12. Bastian, can I get you to read these verses to us, bro? Sure, brother. And to the message of the church in Philadelphia, right. These things says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, the One who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. I know your, your works. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and I have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan those who call themselves Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will cause them to come and fall prostrate uh, before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my endurance. I also will keep you out of the hour of trial, which is about to uh, come on the whole inhabited earth to try them who dwell on the earth. I come quickly, uh, hold fast, uh, what you have that no one takes your crown. You overcomes 
him I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall by no means go out anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which descends out of, he out of heaven from my God and my new name. Amen. Wonderful. Amen. Thank you, Bastian. Um, Amen. So these uh, verses are what we're going to be diving into, but these are really kind of a window from which we will we will see a lot that is um, in the word. So uh, I'm going to start and we're going to talk about how the Lord reveals himself to the church in Philadelphia. And hmm. he reveals himself first <clears throat> as the Holy One and as the true one. And this is this is something we we need to pay attention to uh because he doesn't reveal himself in this way to any other church in revealing himself as the holy one and the true one he's opening up something of his own nature to the church in philadelphia and that says something about the condition of the church in philadelphia it is such that the lord is able to reveal something of his nature to the church. Uh, the other thing that we need to remember is that whatever the Lord reveals of himself to that particular church, he actually wants to work himself, whatever that aspect is, he wants to work that aspect of himself into the church. So if he reveals himself as the Holy One and the True One, that means he actually wants to make us holy as he is holy. And he wants to make us people who are people of reality, who know the true one. Okay, so uh, as the holy one and as the true one, uh, this actually is connected to something that will, will come up later, which is related to keeping his word and not denying his name. So keeping his word means we're not only faithful to his word, but we're joined to his word. We're one with him in his word, and we're actually one with the person who's revealed in his word, and we match him. To not deny his name means that we match him in his nature, and we're constituted with Christ as our reality so that we express his person. So what the Lord is to the church in Philadelphia. It's very striking. This isn't the case in any of the other um, churches. What he, the way that he reveals himself, actually, there's a match with the church itself. If you remember the other churches, he reveals himself in a certain way because that's their need. And it's not as if the church in Philadelphia doesn't need the Lord, but there's something that the, the characteristic of that church is such as that they are enjoying him in that aspect. They are enjoying him as the Holy One. They know him as the Holy One and as the true one, at least to some extent. Okay. Now, uh, this is the, 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 uh, a really big one. He is the one who has the key of David. And um, 
actually, this is a quote from the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 22, uh, 20 through 24. And so here, this brings out a very important principle that the Old Testament is full of types and pictures concerning Christ. And so the Lord, uh, when he's, as he's writing through John to the church in Philadelphia, he makes this statement about the one who has the key of David. And in so doing, he refers back to Isaiah 22. So uh, let's see. Um, uh, Helen, would you be okay to read um, those verses for us? Let's just start with verse, uh, we'll do verses 20 through 24. Um, verse 20, and in that day, I will call to my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic, and I will strengthen him with your girding sash, and I will put your dominion into his hand. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will set the key of the house of David upon his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him as a peg into a sure place. And he will become a throne of glory for his father's house. And they will hang upon him all the glory of his father's house the offspring and the issue, all the smallest vessels from the bowls to all the jars. Thank you. It's, it's an interesting portion. Um, and so uh, I think we can see right in verse 22, that's what causes us to even think that this particular portion of the word has a relationship to Revelation 3.7. Because in Revelation 3.7, it says that he's the one who has the key of David, and he's the one who uh, opens, and no one will shut, and shuts. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, let me just make sure I got it. Okay, he's the one who opens, and no one will shut, and he shuts, and no one, no one opens. So this is um, Isaiah 22. 22. And here it refers to someone named Eliakim. Now Eliakim, uh, he was actually a steward in the house of Hezekiah the king. Uh, but in type, he is a type of Christ. And so for, there are six types of Christ that are revealed here. And so um, we'll just kind of jump into those a little bit because they all relate to the church in Philadelphia. Okay, um, so first of all, he is uh, someone, uh, Eliakim, it says, my servant Eliakim, and I will clothe him with your tunic and I will strengthen him with your girding sash and I will put your dominion into his hand. Okay. So this indicates that he is the unique steward of the house of God. God's household is the greatest house in the universe. And it includes all the believers throughout all the ages. 
every household needs a steward and the steward of God's household, the unique steward is Christ. And the way that he takes care of uh, God's household is by serving us and his serving actually ultimately results in him ruling over us. So with his service, there is ruling. And that's actually, I think if you check with your own experience, when we first receive the Lord, the Lord just comes to us and serves us with himself. And the more we spend time with him and the more we get to know him, the more we're actually restricted by him. The more his life, his person restricts us. Uh, he doesn't come to us in that way right away. He comes to serve us. But eventually, because we're in a wonderful, intimate relationship with him, his person restricts us in how we live so that we express him and we represent him. Okay. Um, it also says about Eliakim, it says, he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So here, Christ, as typified by Eliakim, he is actually the father as the source and supplier to the people of God. Now, if that thought seems a little bit strange, um, just remember, uh, do you recall another verse in Isaiah that refers to the father? It's a kind of famous verse. That's why I ask. But if you don't, it's okay. Anyway, if either of you, if any of you um, <clears throat> recall that verse, uh, okay. <clears throat> going, going. So going. sorry, bro brother. Yeah. Uh, what is that verse? The verse that you're talking about? Well, I was asking if if you might know what it is. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but um, the verse is actually Isaiah 9-6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, right? And his name will be called uh, the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. So here, Christ is prophesied, uh, but he's also referred to as the Mighty God and the Eternal Father. Okay, so uh, this thought exists in Isaiah. This is the mystery of the triune God. The, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, they coexist. They co-inhere uh, simultaneously. Um, that is, they mutually indwell one another. In John, we see that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. So don't explain, don't ask me to explain how this works. Um, it just is. But because, but Isaiah points out that Christ is the Father as the source and the supplier to the people of to the people of God. And actually, the more we go on in our experience with the Lord, the more we realize that not only is He our Savior, but He's our source. And he's our supplier. Actually, uh, everything that we need comes from him. As we go on, we realize we need him in so many ways. We need him not just spiritually, but we need him physically. We need him psychologically. We need him in so many ways. And as such, he is our source and our supplier. Now, 
that's not all. There are actually six types here, and I think we've just done two. So the third is that um, he uh, is the key holder. He holds the key. He holds the key of the house of David upon his shoulder. So Christ, he holds the key of David. Uh, this implies authority. Um, the key held by David um, is actually the key of God's entire dominion. Okay? Do God's dominion includes the entire universe. Um, and that particularly refers uh, to mankind. So this dominion has a key. And uh, the, actually, Christ is the real, uh, the real David. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we see this uh, very clearly. He's the real David. He's the greater David. He's the one who builds God's temple. He's the one who builds the church. He's the one who establishes God's kingdom. So uh, with this matter of the key of David, uh, this has something, it's related to representing God to even opening the entire universe for God. So that's what it means for Christ to hold the key of David. It shows that he's the one who is at the very center of everything that God is doing. Everything that God is doing in the universe to carry out his plan, to carry out his economy, Christ is at the center of God's plan. He is the one who expresses God. He's the one who represents God. He's the one who holds the key to open everything in God's dominion. Another aspect of this key is that it's for keeping the treasures of the house of God. So in the Old Testament, there's actually a, a pretty famous account where uh, people come from Babylon and Hezekiah actually uh, shows all the treasures of is of, of um of uh, the temple to uh, the people who come from Babylon. And by doing that, uh, they then go back and uh, a generation or two later, uh, they then come and they take everything. So that's not a positive ex example, but it indicates that uh, within the temple, you had all this treasure. And so, um, the key is not only uh, for God's authority, but it's also for keeping the treasures of the house of God. And so what this means is that um, in our relationship with the Lord, uh, sometimes we may, we may have the, the feeling or the realization that all of his riches are available to us. But then at other times we may offend him and then it seems like it, they're not that available. And until our relationship with him is restored, we don't, are not able to access all the riches that are in his house. So Christ holds the key, not only to God's entire dominion, but also to all the riches in God's house. And all the riches in God's house, as we see in Ephesians 3, are just Christ himself. Okay, now... Uh, we'll get to the last two. The last two are that Christ is a peg, okay? He's a nail 
driven into a sure place. So here, the sure place refeel, refers to the third heaven. And so this actually refers to the fact that in Christ's ascension, when he was exalted, when Christ was exalted, God drove him as a peg into the place where he is in the heavens. Okay, so Christ today is in the heavens as a peg driven in driven into God. Okay, he is driven into God and actually we all are hanging upon him as that peg. Now don't ask me why Isaiah and the Lord through Isaiah chose to have that particular imagery, but it indicates that Christ is in God and we are in Christ because on the peg you have all the vessels, all the vessels hanging, which uh, typify us. Okay, not only that, but as the peg driven into God, he becomes a throne of glory for the, his father's house. Okay, the glory here is the children of God as the offspring and the issue of God. So all these children of God, they are vessels of Christ hanging upon Christ, who is the peg, who is driven into God. So Christ, <laughs> I have a visitor. You want to say hi? Okay. Who said this isn't a family program? <laughs> it is, it's kind of a family program. <laughs> she wants to be with me for a bit. Okay. All right. So, um, <laughs> okay. She don't want to go. Okay. <laughs> the children escaped. <laughs> anyway, so <clears throat> that's my oldest daughter. She's super cute, but she escaped from the from from where she was. Okay. Remember, members one of another. Yeah. Amen. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he's the peg. We're the vessels <laughs> hanging on the peg. Okay. Yeah. With, um, and, and also he's the throne. There's actually not really a verse in the new Testament that says that Christ is the throne. We wouldn't know except from Isaiah. Isaiah actually says he's the throne of glory. Okay. That's what's amazing about having the Old Testament and the New Testament together is the Old Testament contains these details that sometimes we don't have in the New Testament. So already from here, we see Christ is the father. He's the throne of glory. He's a peg that's been driven into the father. And we are vessels that are hanging on him. We're his glory. We're his issue. We're his offspring. Okay. Now, this is quite something. From uh, verse 24, it says, They will hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all the smallest vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. Okay, now why would it talk about bowls and jars? All right. Um, actually, cups and bowls are kind of smaller vessels, okay? And they're used mainly to contain water. 
The bigger vessels, like pitchers or jars, normally were used to contain wine. Now, both of these actually signify different aspects of the divine life. Um, but we uh, are the vessels. And so as vessels, we should contain Christ as the divine as the divine life. We need to contain him as water and we need to contain him as wine. But that's not just for us. So every okay, every one of us, we should be filled with the divine water and the divine wine. But this implies that in the house of God, all of his children who hang on the all-inclusive Christ and who are containers of the riches of God, they also should be vessels for ministering Christ to others. So as vessels, we not only contain the living water and the new wine for our enjoyment, but we should minister these riches to others, okay? So that's all behind this phrase, the one who holds the key of David. He's also the one who opens and no one will shut, and he shuts and no one will open. This is a characteristic of the recovered church. It's the Lord who opens the door, and it's the Lord who shuts the door. This is his recovery. It's no one else's recovery. And when there is the, when, when, the conditions required for the recovered church are there. Nothing can stand in the way of the Lord's move in his, in his recovered church. It reminds me of um, Matthew 16. The gates of Hades will not prevail against, uh, against the church. So as the church is built up, the gates of Hades does attack, but the gates of Hades will not prevail. Okay. So that's who the Lord is to uh, the recovered church, to the church in Philadelphia. And uh, now Trevor is going to uh, bring us into a little bit more of the history. Okay, so something that we learned last week is that Sardis is, um, well, one of the main characteristics of Sardis. You can see here in verse 2. Uh, Mia, can you read verse 2 for me? Are you, are you muted? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Become watchful and establish the things which remain, which were about to die. For I have found none of your works completed before my God. Okay, so this is, this is, uh, I got to be honest, last week, this really blew me away. I, I, I got into this and it's having, having this, this uh, idea in your head that everything's done, everything's completed, mm. actually immediately issues into Sardis. You, you have the spirit of Sardis if you think everything's done. And actually, when we, when, we, uh, um, when we were getting into this, I remembered vividly this, this experience I had when, when, I, first, um, when I first met the, the brothers. And I was, I, anyway, I bought, I bought this recovery version Bible, you know, and I thought it was really cool. And, you know, I, I've got a lot of Bibles. Anyway, but I took this one home and I, and I met up with one of my, my former youth pastors when I, where I grew up and we met at Starbucks and I pulled it out and I really had, like had all this cool stuff to show him. 
and he saw the front of it and it, he said recovery virgin what needs to be recovered it's all done hmm. and and i just like I, I just like vividly remember this moment and i was just like well how come i'm learning all this new stuff then like you never taught me this stuff i didn't say that to him you know anyway so so the thing is the thing is he he um because of where where he grew up and where what he was taught and all this stuff he's actually still in sardis and and god god actually says to sardis that that none of your works are completed and we see this throughout church history so when we look at church history we see that there's still lutherans around um a lot of the time i i meet people um and and the way they speak i can identify what what teaching they were brought up in so they'll they'll be speaking and i'm like oh you're a calvinist okay and the thing is there's nothing there's nothing wrong with these teachings the fact is they aren't complete okay which is when you when you meet when you meet someone from this background it's not it's not beneficial to you or to them to sit there and make them feel as if like what they believe is wrong because oftentimes it's not wrong it's just incomplete and so what we what we need to do is we need to offer the 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 rest of what we know and then we need to co continue pursuing together because what we have is not complete okay and so i personally never want to have a spirit thinking everything's done everything's complete because what we're doing here, here we go, if, and I say a big if, we personally, inwardly, in our heart, intrinsically, are in Philadelphia. This is the needle point on the top, okay? And what we're doing is we're trying to climb up, and we're Sardis, and we're trying to recover all these truths. And then let's say we get to the needle point. We can either fall forward into Laodicea, which we'll learn next week, or we fall backwards into Sardis, okay? And it's a very, it's like a needle point. It's even, it's even like, it's even more fine than this, okay? And so this is the thing. One thing I want to be, make very clear this week is the moment you claim to be Philadelphia, you are not, okay? So this, this is the characteristic of Philadelphia. Anybody who claims this group of people is Philadelphia. They're not Philadelphia. Okay. And so this is something that we're, we're coming out of is we're, we're, we're starting to grow in, in a way from, we don't want, we don't want to think that everything's complete. We want to continue recovering things. And so last week we covered a lot of stuff. We, we got all the way. Nathaniel, where did we get up to bro? Like, like as far as church history, how far did we get? We went and got up to the Welsh Revival in the 1900s, early oh, 1900s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then one of the other things we noticed is in verse 1, in Revelation 3, 1, the Lord says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are living, yet you are dead. And so what we realized is what's happening is the moment we start to lose life, okay, and we become dead, what we do is we increase the works in order to compensate for the lack or loss of life. And also something that creeps in is a lot of organization and control. And these and laws and ordinances and all these types of things start seeping in. 
And this is a, this is a very negative characteristic and that this is not Philadelphia, okay? So what we're doing here, uh, what happened with Evan Roberts and the Welsh revival, there was a huge revival. Nathaniel hit on it last week a little bit. The, it, it ended up putting theaters and bars out of business because there was such a huge revival of the Lord. And everybody was enjoying the Lord so much. Why do I need to go to a movie theater? Why do I need to go to a, a bar? I, I'm, I'm fellowshipping with the brothers, you know? And then uh, eventually that, that dissipated and it actually got lost. And so Evan Roberts disappeared. He just disappeared. And they couldn't find him for a while. And then he came back. And when he came back, they asked him, where, where have you been? And his, his testimony was, I've been asking the Lord for years what happened. And, I, and the Lord finally spoke to me that we had the new wine, but we did not have the new wineskin. So what we need to do here is we need to go to Matthew where the Lord speaks about this and we need to see what he's talking about. So um, we can start with 16. This is, this is Matthew 9, 16 and 17. Mia, can you read these for me? Yeah. No one puts a patch of unfold cloth on an old garment for that which fills up pulls away from the garment, and a worse tears made. Neither do they put a new wine into new old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, so we actually see, we actually see something that's really interesting. And at Pentecost, what we see, and we hit this like very quickly last week, at Pentecost, what we see is a reversal of what the Lord did at the Tower of Babel, where he actually mixed up all the languages. And, and that was in response to man being the source of the oneness, which was to build this tower. And then the Lord at Pentecost, he actually does the reverse. He actually gives everybody the same language. They all start realizing like, wait, I understand what that person's speaking. And, and this is the source is the spirit. But immediately afterwards, the Lord actually establishes the church in Jerusalem. So you cannot just have the spirit without the container. And the Lord immediately after giving the spirit, he also gives the container otherwise otherwise it would just leak out and here in in matthew 9 17 the greek word for new means new in time recent newly possessed the new wine here signifies that christ as the new life is full of vigor stirring people to excitement okay i i love this how many of you have been excited recently in the Lord? I don't know. I don't know. But this is something, this is something that we have to go to the Lord about. Lord, I want, I want to be happy and I want to be excited in you. I want you to excite me. Okay. The old wineskin actually signifies religious practices. It's it's all of religion is the old wineskin okay i studied history and religious studies i double majored in college 
I literally studied physically dead people and spiritually dead people. I studied dead people, okay? And this is the thing. Whenever you start studying religious studies, all you get is a bunch of death. It's just death, okay? And this is the old wineskin. Okay, if you don't have a container, there's no, the, the new wine will just run out. And this is why those who are in denominations, those who are in Sardis, nothing's been completed, okay? This is why they're always looking for the next revival. Where is it? Oh, I heard something's happening over here. I heard something's happening over there. And then it always runs out. It just always runs out. Okay. Another example is actually Pentecost or, or Pentecostals or charismatic people. Okay. This was really interesting because I, I was involved in this a little bit and I was always confused, you know, cause I genuinely experienced some stuff. So I went to this brother and I asked him like, what is it? Cause I knew he had, a, he had, a, he had kind of gotten involved in it a little bit too. And the answer he gave me was that, that actually, uh, Pentecostals, uh, on one hand, it's really amazing because they want to experience the Lord now. They're not looking for a past Jesus or a future Jesus. They want to experience the Lord now. The problem is a lot of times what they do is not based on the word. And so as long as they're governed by the word of God, they can be very genuine experiences. And actually, Pentecostalism is a gateway into the reality of the church life, okay? And so a reason why so many young people are involved in, like if you ever go to a Pentecostal church, there's not very many old people. And the reason why is because the wine ran out. Man, this is, this is like getting kind of boring. Um, and and what, what's, what's it all for? And so if you don't get, if you don't have a vision of the church, and, and what, what is on God's heart, then all these things just kind of wear off after a while and it gets a little boring. So what happened was when, when the Lord started to recover this, there was this guy named Count Zinzendorf. And I've got to be honest with you. He's pretty much, I have to say, I think, I think he has the coolest name in church history. Okay. Count Zinzendorf, you know, and I like to call him Count Z. So Count Z was, was in Moravia. Okay. And, and I'm, you know, forgive me Germans for just, I'm just going to kill all these names. Okay. So first of all, it's in Hernhut and that's how an American English speaker would say it. And I know they always correct me when I say it wrong, but this is where he, he lived. This was his, his, his mansion. And there were all these believers getting persecuted. This was in the 1700s. And he, he realizes, actually, all believers just need to be one. We need to drop all of our names. Okay? And the word denomination actually means having another name. Okay? That's literally what it means. Now, what's interesting, when you start looking here in, in Revelation 3... One of the things that Philadelphia does not do, okay, is they have not denied my name. This is in verse eight, okay? So the moment you take another name, okay, which is what a denomination is, you immediately are not Philadelphia. You're disqualified, okay? 
And so this is this is one of the qualifications for being Philadelphia. That does not mean that does not mean that you're automatically Philadelphia. Okay. So Philadelphia can have a shell. Okay. We can have a shell as as a local church, but you need the intrinsic reality that is the spirit being lived out. And this is the warning that takes place in, F, in, in Ephesians, the, the, the church we did earlier in the seven churches, that I will, remove, or I will remove your lampstand, okay? The lampstand is, is the actual expression of Christ being lived out by the believers. He didn't say, I will remove your church. I will remove your lampstand, mm. okay? And so this is this is interesting. We can have we can we can have all the proper ways of meeting, but unless we have the intrinsic reality, which is the spirit, which all the brothers are going to hit on a lot today, unless we have that, we do not have Philadelphia. Okay. And so what ends up happening is Count Zinzendorf gets all these believers to come and, and stay at his house, and they can stay there under one condition: you have to drop your name. You got to drop your name. Okay. So they all started arguing and he was, he was a masterpiece peacemaker, man. He, he would just, he would go visit them whenever they would have a disagreement. He would just pray with them. And then, and then he'd bring, he'd bring the brotherly love back together and they would all be happy again. Okay. So Count Zinzendorf was doing this the whole time. And what ended up happening was first, there's the oneness. First, there was the oneness. The thing that most Christians completely ignore is the origin and the source of the other things they're famous for. So the other thing they're famous for is they prayed for 100 years, 24 hours a day in a prayer tower, okay? And this blows away any prayer meeting you've ever been a part of, okay? I mean, try and keep that one going for, for a hundo, okay? So for 100 years, they go to this prayer tower and on the prayer tower, there's these little markers. This is in Hernhut. I've been there seven times, okay? It's, I've been there a lot. And so there's these little markers that they've replaced them, the markers. But there's these little markers on the railing, and it actually shows destinations of places out in the distance. And actually, they started praying in that direction for, those, for the Lord to move in that part of the earth, okay? And because of the oneness, they received a blessing, Okay. And that blessing issued in them praying together, which also, interestingly enough, Mia, when you start praying for someone, don't you pick up a burden for that person? Mm. I think I think you should. Okay. And so what ended up happening is they're praying for different parts of the earth. And at this time, this is a foreign concept to all of us. At this time, there was actually a teaching that spreading the gospel to the whole inhabited earth only applied to the apostles. Hmm. Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. And so what they, what they, one of the things they recovered was missions work. I mean, this is so weird to us, but at that time they just started sending people out and some of them were so burdened for different parts of the world that they, there was this one story where they went to the Caribbean and they, they found out that these slaves in the slave trade were on this island. And the only way you could get to the island is being a slave. And they sold themselves into slavery just to get amongst the slaves to preach the gospel to them. Okay. 
this is a different kind of group of people. But what happened is they took, they took the table meeting or communion for the first time. And there was a Pentecostal like experience that rushed into the room. This is, this is their testimony. And they realized that the Lord's blessing was there. We dropped a name and we're just meeting as brothers. They didn't know what to call them. What do we call them? Uh, they don't have a name. Should we call them the Count Z's? Uh, no, probably not. Let's, let's go the Moravian brethren, you know? And so what ends up happening, can I show you guys something cool? One thing that we, that we got from the Moravian brethren is they, they came up with this thing. I'm going to show you this pic. I'm going to show you a picture. This is cool. This is something that, this is the room. Can you guys see this? This is the room where they came up. This is in, this is in Count Zinzendorf's mansion. And it's the room where they came up with the idea of having morning watch. And they called it the morning watch word. Okay. And later on, Watchman Nee read church history and he found out that they used to break down messages and they would give them Bible verses. And they called it the morning watch word, which eventually was what we call the holy word for morning revival. Okay. This was not our invention. It was actually his. And this, my friends, I don't know if you can see this. This is an exact replica from 1731 of a morning watchword, okay? Straight from the bookstore in Hernhut. Okay, so this is the deal. This is something that they recovered there, okay? And, and this is, I want, Mia's really gonna dig this. Mia, I need you to read this. This is from, this is from Bonhoeffer. This is his book. Mia's smiling because we've talked about Bonhoeffer a lot. Okay. So can you, can you just read, um, can you read, yeah. Are you able to read that? Can you see it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. This is kind of a footnote in his book. Um, Bonhoeffer well knew the danger of pietism, but he, he drew on the conservative theological tradition of the Herrn Hüter throughout his life, always using the Moravian's daily Bible texts for private devotions. Each day, there was a verse from the Old Testament and a verse from the New Testament. Published yearly since Zinzendorf's time, they were known to Bonhoeffer as Losungen, watchwords, although he sometimes just called them the texts. The, these Losungen figured prominently in his decision to return to Germany in 1939. He continued these devotions to the end of his, of his life and introduced the practice to his fiancée and many others. Okay, so this is, this, this is something that has been practiced by believers and it started in Moravia and with the Moravian brethren, okay? And then this, this last one, this is actually a picture of everywhere that they went on their mission work, okay? And if you'll notice, there's, there's some places on this earth that they did not go. And something that they, they did is they did not try to bring what they had in Hernhut to these places. And this was ultimately their downfall, okay? What they should have done is they should have brought in the oneness they should have dropped their names and they should have prayed and done more missions work. Okay. 
but one so if you see on this map they did not go to australia and they didn't go to basically the entire coast of asia okay so that'll come in later okay so now what do we got oh okay now i have to hit this point very quickly and what we're going to talk about quickly is the ground of the church okay so do I, oh no, I don't. I hand it off to Brother Ray and I come back to the ground of the church. Brother Ray lives in Dublin and basically Philadelphia was recovered for the first time God had it, okay? For maybe, I don't know, it's been like 1600 years. And finally the Lord had Philadelphia, okay? And then they lost it. It just, it, I actually don't even know the history of why they lost it. But they lost it for a little while. And then Brother Ray is going to share with us all about the Plymouth Brethren and Tom Nelson Dark. Take it away, Brother Ray. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you all. <clears throat> I, I, <clears throat> I'm really happy to have this opportunity. And uh, one thing I really enjoy about, you know, when you get into the, the seven churches, as the brothers are doing here with the Book of Revelation, and considering church history, you realize uh, we really do have a great and rich heritage in the church. Uh, you know, our experience is not just, uh, you know, an experience of the 20th or 21st centuries, but it's based on the Lord's move uh, through so many dear believers throughout history, ever since the Lord's time, in which you can you can see uh, how the real believers in Christ, uh, those faithful ones who really were interested in just simply following God's word, and uh, this is this was what governed them, and. Uh, of course, we realized at the same time there was the development of, uh, as you saw in, in Thyatira, for example, uh, a development of uh, a great system, an organizational system full of hierarchy. And uh, there was a divergence, uh, a leaving of God's word. So you have these two threads really in church history. One is a thread of organization, ritual, doctrine, and so forth. Another thread is a thread that is not as noticeable because, you know, the first thread of organization and structure and hierarchy, you can see that evidenced in things like cathedrals and uh, ceremonial activities and all these things that are very easy to observe. But meanwhile, there's something more hidden, something that's quieter going on in church history, where there are these brothers throughout history that are bringing the church back to the truth, bringing the church back to the word. And, uh, you know, as the brothers pointed out, you have people like Zinzendorf, uh, Evan Roberts, and so forth. Well, we can even go back to the time of the Reformation, which I'm, I'm sure you covered uh, in, in discussing Sardis. You know, you have, of course, Martin Luther, well-known, who saw something in the Bible concerning the matter of justification by faith. And he was able to help this, the church get adjusted to realize 
this is the unique way of salvation. And that is that we need to believe into Christ. And of course, there's much more that can be said about the Reformation. But there's something else going on that begins to take place, as Trevor said, in fulfillment of this matter of the church in Philadelphia. And you can actually see this with a group of brothers who begin to meet together in Dublin, Dublin, Ireland, where I live right now. And we'd like to tell you a little bit about how these brothers came together, what their experience was like, and then what happened. Uh, you know, in the 1820s, uh, there were, of course, Christians throughout Europe who, again, you have the two contrasts, the large organizational structure mainly embodied in Roman Catholicism, but also seen in the denominations. Then at the same time, you have something that's somewhat hidden where particularly evidenced with Zinzendorf, where uh, brothers who are really seeking to follow the light of God's word. And uh, eventually, by the time we reached the, eight, the period around the 1820s, there were these two kinds of threads. And in Dublin, Ireland, there were a couple of brothers that came together and they realized that number one, there's really no basis for the idea of denominations in the scripture. You cannot find in the Bible, the idea of denominational, a denominational system by which the believers should come together and meet. And they realized there was something not right about that. And they also realized, at least some of them, not all of them, but some of them realized that the idea of a mediatorial class, in other words, the idea of clergy, priests, that this also is not supported by the word. That each believer has a direct and personal relationship with God that each believer can pray to God and, and offer praises to God, that there's no need, no, no requirement that there be someone in between serving as a so-called priest. And so uh, these two components, they also realize that in the denominational system by the very definition of denominations, denominations or sex mean that the believers are inherently separated from one another. They're denominated, therefore they're separated. They're not in the oneness that the Lord prayed for in the Gospel of John. Neither are they in the oneness of the one body of Christ. And so they began to see these things and uh, a couple of them began to meet right here, in fact, about 10 to 15 minutes from where I live, we, next time you visit Dublin, we'll walk you over there. We'll go to 9 Fitzwilliam Square. And there is the location where these brothers, two or three of them, first began to meet together and they broke bread. And uh, at that time, they realized 
two major things. Number one, that as believers, it is God's intention that we would just meet in oneness with one another and that we would meet simply in the Lord's name. We would not take any other name. And this was, of course, based on Matthew 18, where the Lord Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. So if we gather in the Lord's name, we receive the blessing of his presence. There's no greater blessing than to have the Lord's presence. And these brothers realized that. And they, so they began to meet just in the Lord's name. And, you know, uh, in later years, they became known as the Brethren, or they became known as the Plymouth Brethren. But that was not a name that they chose for themselves. This was a name that was applied to them by other people. But when they came together, they just considered that they were brothers, they were just brothers meeting in the Lord's name. They have no other name but the Lord's name. And so you can see just with this one truth, you can begin to see uh, a little application. As you see in verse 8 here in Revelation 3, you have a little power, you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. So by by meeting in the Lord's name and not taking any other name, these brothers were being faithful to this word. And uh, they were faithful to just keep the Lord's word in this respect. So that, this is when they began to meet together in this way. And at this point, Trevor, maybe we can pull up this quote from God's Overcomers, uh, a book by Watchman Nee, which kind of describes what takes place with the brothers. And maybe for this quote, I could ask uh, Helen, if you could, if you wouldn't mind reading this quote for us. Sure. In 1827, a book of, sorry, in 1827, a group of people were raised up in Dublin, Ireland. Through reading their books, I received light to see the error of denominational organizations and to realize that there is only one body of Christ. The church should not be formed by human opinions, but should be under the direct leading of the Holy Spirit. When we consider the present-day church organizations, we see many human traditions and opinions and little direct leading of the Holy Spirit. This is not according to God's desire. In God's will, the church should not be under man's control, it should be directly, sorry, it should be directed only by the Holy Spirit. All those who belong to the Lord should learn to be led by the Holy Spirit and should not follow men's direction. These are all truths discovered by the brethren, God's okay. overcomers. Yes, thank you, Helen. So you can see this description of what happens here in this period of 1827, 28, and so on. There really is a great recovery by the Lord and really a move by the Lord among these brothers in their coming together and realizing that they should not meet in any other name and that they should be faithful to the Lord's word. And this is, as we saw, a description 
uh, the elements of the church in Philadelphia. And so these brothers, perhaps without necessarily claiming to be Philadelphia or seeking to be Philadelphia, they actually began to taste something of the reality of Philadelphia because of their faithfulness to the Lord's word. And the Lord makes it clear that in his estimation, it's, it's a matter of Christ and the church. There's no other name. And so these brothers realize this. And as a result of their coming together in this way, the Lord began to bless them. And one of the major elements, the major factors in this kind of blessing is that the Bible, the scripture itself was really opened up to them. Uh, actually in another place, there's a description of many of these early brethren teachers and the different aspects of truth that they recovered, indicating that the Lord was really moving among them to open up the word and to open up the truth to them in a, in a somewhat unprecedented way. You know, there's a quote by a teacher named Panton who says that although the recovery or the, uh, the Lord's move at the time of the Reformation was great, he considers that what the Lord was doing at this time through the brothers, that this movement was even greater than that of the Reformation. And so, and others have said something similar. So you see here that when the brothers began to come together in this way, and this continued for a number of years, where they really uh, uh, received much light from the Lord. And then as Watchman Nee says here, through reading their books, I received light. So what they experienced was not only for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the church at large. And that benefit continues to this day. Eventually, a short time after this time of 1827, a, a man, I'd like to mention this, uh, this brother named John Nelson Darby, because when we speak about the brethren, eventually you come to his name because I think most students of this movement, of this uh, move uh, of the Lord among, among them realized that Darby, this man Darby was, became eventually the most prominent of their, of their teachers. And of course they had many very uh, top scholars and, and teachers that really got into the word. Actually, before I mention Darby, let me mention one other uh, man who met with them in the very beginning. His name is Anthony Norris Groves. And for some reason, I've always been impressed with this brother because he's not nearly as well known as Darby is, but he was also there at the beginning. And, you know, uh, Trevor mentioned this idea of the missionaries, you know, going out to preach the gospel in other countries. The brethren were also very active in the missionary movement. They really, through the years, through the 1800s into the 1900s, they, they, uh, they were quite active in, in the missions. Uh, but this, uh, this man, Anthony Norris Groves, uh, some consider him to be one of the pioneers uh, of the missionary movement. And uh, he and his wife and some others actually went to Iraq to Baghdad, Iraq, uh, to bring the, the gospel there. 
And eventually his wife died of illness there. She died of illness. And then sometime after that, eventually he made his way over to India and became very influential in the gospel to India. So uh, again, this is another person we don't hear too much about, but I've always been impressed with this, with this brother who uh, was so faithful to the Lord. Eventually, he also died at a relatively early age because of the sufferings that he went through. But getting back to Darby, uh, Darby was born in England, but he attended university at Trinity College, Dublin. He actually was trained in law and was qualified to be a lawyer, but eventually he decided to uh, take the way of ordination. He was ordained as an Anglican pastor, and he was assigned to the hills of Wicklow, which are about a half hour south of Dublin, a short drive down here, uh, in which he would go and he would preach the gospel to the Catholics, the Catholic peasants that lived there. And one person, at least one person, said later that if Ireland had 50 Darbys, the entire island would be evangelized. And at that time, there were about 12 million people living in Ireland. And so his energy, his vitality, his faithfulness to the Lord was evidenced even at an early age. But eventually he began to realize that the Anglican church and the state, there was a kind of an alliance between the two of them. And he felt that uh, the Anglican church was much too connected to the worldly government. And he realized there was something not proper about this and was bothered also by what he saw in the Bible concerning the practice of the churches, the church life in the early new days in the New Testament. And so eventually he met with the brothers. In fact, he, uh, he was injured. He was riding, his, riding a horse up in the hills of Wicklow and he was injured and he needed to go to his, uh, I think it was his sister's home in Fitzwilliam Square, right around the block from where the brothers were meeting. And as a result, he got connected with the brothers and began to meet with them in these early days. And eventually he was very much used by the Lord uh, to, to recover so many matters in the Bible. Eventually, uh, Darby uh, and others moved to Plymouth, England. And while they were there in Plymouth, uh, excuse the siren going by, but uh, while they were there in Plymouth, uh, they, they met uh, with others and that's where they became somewhat more well-known is because their numbers grew, they became more prominent. And that's why many people refer to them as the Plymouth Brethren. Again, a name given to them by others, but not taken uh, by them. Uh, but really the root of what they experienced and the roots of what they saw took place right here in Dublin. Uh, one, uh, one point I want to make, uh, saints, too, with concerning these brothers is that when they began, all of them were under 30 years of age. 
They were all recent graduates of, of the university. Many, many of them went to Trinity University, which is a 10 minute walk from here. And uh, uh, they were all young people seeking the Lord, pursuing the Lord. And it was through them that the Lord was able to raise up something that was so significant. And so at this point, uh, Trevor, maybe we could go to the next quote. Okay, this is another description by Watchman Nee of what took place in Dublin at that time. And maybe Helen, I'll ask you to read this again, okay? This, this new quote. In 1825 in Dublin, the capital of Ireland, there were several believers whose hearts were moved by God to love all the children of the Lord, regardless of their denomination. This kind of love was not to be frustrated by the walls of denomination. They began to see that in the scriptures, God says there is but one body of Christ, regardless of how many sects men may di divide her into. In 1825, after more than a thousand years of the Roman Catholic Church and several hundred years of the Pen Protestant churches, there was the first return to the simple, free, and spiritual worship in the scriptures, orthodoxy of the church. Yes, you can see in this statement uh, what a great thing it was uh, for these young believers to come together in this way, uh, to remove the walls of denomination, just to enter into a kind of church life at that time in which they loved one another and they began to see things in the scriptures more and more. There was an unrolling of the, a, a kind of an unfolding of the scroll. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's talk about how the Lord as the lion land opens up the scroll of God's economy. There's a kind of unrolling of the scroll. It's not like a book where you just turn pages, but there's an unrolling of the scroll, an unfolding of truth. Well, this, the Lord did a lot during this time. And because of what these brothers saw in the scripture, the unfolding of truth that took place during that time, we continue to receive the benefit from what these brothers saw. And this, this has been to our benefit even in these days. And so there's a continual unrolling of the scroll where more and more truth is seen, more light is coming uh, through God's word to benefit the church. And uh, here we are. So um, thank the Lord for what he did among the, the brethren beginning in Dublin, continuing in Plymouth, and then continuing for a period of time to spread even to other parts of Europe. But one thing that took place, and just to kind of finish this, the story, uh, as I mentioned, Darby moved to Plymouth, and there he uh, had some interaction with another brother named Benjamin Newton. And to make the story short, they unfortunately, I would say even tragically, uh, began to have some doctrinal differences regarding things. And uh, because of the doctrinal differences, and you know, one thing you can say also that accompanies doctrinal differences 
is you can also say that the flesh accompanies these things because man's pride enters into these kind of debates. When there are these kind of differences that separate the believers, that cause discord, a lot of times there's pride, there's ambition, uh, an unwillingness to, uh, to give in to someone else and an unwillingness to cooperate with others. These things all kind of enter into the, the picture. And eventually because of this strong disagreement between Darby and Newton, there was a, a real schism in the, in the, among the brethren. They became known as the open brethren and then the exclusive brethren, two different schools that went in different directions. And so from that point, and uh, we will probably speak about this more next week in connection with Laodicea, but once the brothers broke apart, then it just seemed that they fell into a kind of a, a, a lukewarm, uh, deadened situation. And it shows again how important the oneness of the believers is that we just meet in the Lord's name and we love one another. But we thank the Lord for what he did among the brethren at that time because we can see from even the statements from Watchman Nee that this opened up a way for us to continue and we received the benefit from what they experienced. Uh, so this was a great recovery at that time but also has continued to benefit us even in these days. So at this point, I will, I guess, go, we'll go back to Trevor. One thing that we're gonna start to show here is this is what we mean when we say there's a blessing in the oneness. So um, Bastian, can you, can you uh, read Psalm 133? Are you, are you unmuted, bro? Oh my. Oh, thanks. So it's uh, Psalm 133, verse? Yeah, the whole thing, bro. Okay, okay, fine. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. It is like the fine oil upon the head that ran down upon the beard, upon Aaron's beard, that ran down upon the hem of his garments. Like the dew of Hermon that came down upon the mountain of Zion. For there Jehovah commanded the blessing, life forever. Okay. So basically, basically what happens here, we, we can see that there's a blessing that happens in, in the unity of believers, in the oneness. Now, I, I know in German, there's a different, you know, unity and oneness are the same word, which kind of turns into a little bit of a speed bump when we, when we go over this stuff. Um, but actually, unity and oneness are not the same thing, okay? There's a place that I'm from, it's called the United States, and they are not one, okay? Trust me. And if you don't know this, you just turn on the news and you can see that they're not one, okay? There's also this thing called the United Nations and everybody in the United Nations comes together and they have their own agenda for their group, okay? Ultimately, what this is, is it's shaking hands over the fence, okay? That's what it is. And so 
this this is not oneness but there is a blessing that both the brethren in in moravia and then also in plymouth they both um experience okay and something that ended up happening was the lord needed to go somewhere else because religion had kind of taken over and so what what the lord did was he he went to a a what we would call virgin soil okay a place where there was no religion there was no anything you know there was no christianity and this place was china okay now this is where it gets interesting because not only did Watchman Nee and Witness Lee, did they, did, they, uh, did they meet with the brethren at different points in time, they also, I, I believe Watchman Nee recognized that I, what the people I'm meeting with, I personally, he was referring to himself, I, I feel spiritually dead. And, and so he, he began to uh, see that they might have had the, the shell, okay, but they, they didn't have the reality inwardly. And so what ended up happening is very interesting because, um, well, here we go. I'm going to show, I'm going to show you guys. This is what I, this is what I love. I love the fact that Watchman Nee had a photographic memory. I don't know what that's like, but that would be awesome. And he, he actually read the new Testament every week for a whole year. I don't, know if, I don't know if you guys have read the New Testament this year, but he, he read it every week for a year, okay? And he, he did it under, he did it with one view in mind. He put these, he put these glasses on and the glasses were, how is the church supposed to meet, okay? I don't know, I don't know how many people do that, honestly. I don't know how many people have that frame of mind, but he did. And what, what you find is, you know, if I'm supposed to be one with Nathan and with Ray and with Nathaniel, and we try to be one and we're all living in the same place um, and we have a disagreement, well, you know, Nathaniel and I agree with each other and Ray and Nathan agree with each other. So we can just split up and then, and then there's no, there's no issue. We're just, I'm just going to be one with Nathaniel and we're going to be, we're going to be one together. Okay. And so, what they didn't see is the ground of the oneness or the ground of the church or the ground of locality. So this is something that we're going to cover. And this is obvious. Watchman Nee did not recover oneness. Okay. He recovered the ground of oneness. Right. So what he ended up seeing through the scriptures is that it is one church in one city. And so what I'm going to, what I'm going to need to do, is I need uh, Mia right now to read Revelation one eleven. Saying, what you see, write in a scroll and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamos and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Okay, so these are seven, they're called seven churches okay they're they're difficult to pronounce but they're actually all seven cities okay and so this is god's this is god's view we've we've gone over this in much more depth that we're not going to do the brothers and i have a new phrase we're not going to do a dive within a dive okay and so 
what we're going to try to do is we're going to try and fly by this because we've already done a dive on the ground of oneness. And so we can't do it again. But I'm going to give you the very basic verses here really quickly. This is one of them. The way God views it is every single blood-washed believer in a city is a part of that church. They're mm. a part of that church, okay? Amen. Where we also see this is in Acts. And this is what Watchman Nee started to see. He started to see that actually there's, there's the ground of locality. Mia, can you read Acts 14.23? And when they had appointed elders for them in every church and had prayed prayed with fastings they committed them to the lord into whom they had believed okay so this is interesting um this is now elders in every church and then if we go you guys got to write these verses down because they're kind of important but this is titus 1 5 can you read that one Mia? Mm -hmm. for this cause i left you in crete that you might set in order the things which I have begun that remain and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Okay. So now we have elders in every church and we have elders in every city. Okay. And then there's actually no evidence of any verse in the entire new Testament where there's two churches in one city. Okay. Ever. Okay. Now, one thing that you have to see here, actually, it's really quite funny. We can even just look at the screen right here. We have Romans. What, what do you think? Wh who do you think Paul was writing to there, Mia? To the um, believers in Rome? Probably, probably. I mean, once this is explained, it's like, it, it's mind-numbing to me that people don't see it, okay? It, it, it blows my mind. So uh, even the books of the Bible are named after cities, Okay. And then actually the Lord, interestingly enough, he says, I will build my church. And what he ends up doing is he ends up taking all the churches in all the cities, that's all the believers, and eventually it consummates in one city, the New Jerusalem. Okay, so he takes all the cities and makes them one city, and it's one big church, and it's the bride of Christ. Okay, so, but some people try to argue this, and they're like, wait, wait a second, Paul wrote to the Galatians, man. There, he said the churches in Galatia. Can you read verse two, Mia? This is Galatians one two. Mm -hmm. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Oh man, it sounds like he wrote to more than one church there, and he did because Galatia is a province; it's not a city. Okay, so there were multiple cities in Galatia. Okay, but now. There's also this thing called the house church movement, okay? People read Acts and they're like, oh, they met in the homes. Okay, I'm going to start a church in my house. Well, I'm not going to get really into this, but can you read, can you read Romans 16.5? And read the church which is in their house. Read Epiphanitus, yeah. my beloved, who is the first fruits of Asia unto Christ. Okay, now this is interesting. Was was their house the church, or was the church in their house? The church was in the house. The church was okay. So the church we know in Greek means the called out ones. Okay, so obviously it's not a physical building. Okay, mm -hmm. so the house itself cannot be the church. So this is a very basic principle. 
okay, just to blow any house church movement idea out of the water. There is no place in the New Testament where the ground of the church is larger than a city or smaller than a city. Okay, it's the city and nothing else. Okay, and then within that city, there should only be one eldership, according to Titus 1 5. Okay, so one house, or sorry, one house, one, one, one city, one church, one eldership. Okay, we can give countless stories where things happened and there were splits and all this stuff. Okay, but you'd have to watch the other dive section to hear those. Okay. So at this point, I'm going to ask Bastian a question. Bastian, what do you do with the question, oh, you guys are just another denomination? Yes, if someone says that to me, yeah, uh, I, would, um, I would probably uh, try and, you know, show them in the bible that it's not the case what, what would you do where would you go bro where would i go i i don't know i, I probably would go to one of the brothers and you know speak to him about it yeah bro, this with is, him. that's good bastion we always got to go to the brothers you know what i'm saying bro yeah okay so so hey, bastion Bastian, just like just like uh, we've said multiple times, this dive session, if if people if people don't learn how to do this themselves, then the dive sessions are totally useless. Okay, Maybe and not. so this is yeah. what this is what I want you to do when somebody says, you know what, you're just another denomination. Very quickly, and I mean this. Okay, Nathan Nathan's dying right now because he really he really wants to share and I understand because he's going to get to the source <laughs> the source of Philadelphia okay this is a really horrible picture of of Egypt and the Middle East okay and you can see it right Bastian I mean it's like it's a work of art okay okay <laughs> yeah it is. so so ba Bastian Bro, according to Deuteronomy 12, and again, you'd have to refer back to a past dive session for this, but according to Deuteronomy 12, yes, yes. God actually says where the temple has to be built, okay, the location. Yes, that's correct. Right. Okay, where was that? It was in Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem. Okay, so we're going to do a little, sorry, this is Jerusalem now, okay? And I don't even okay. know if that's locationally in the right place. Uh, it doesn't matter. Okay. So the point is, that is the place that God ordained the temple to be yes. built. Okay. A yes. lot of people don't know this, but Jeremiah and Daniel were written around the same time. And Jeremiah okay. had been taken off. We're just gonna we're just gonna put a J here. Jeremiah had been taken off and he was in Egypt. Okay, and he was lamenting. Okay, they call him the weeping prophet. So he was over there, okay. Now, if we're basing this off of where he's supposed to be, was he in Jerusalem? No, definitely not. Okay, so was he divided from something? Yes, I think uh, if I am correct, Daniel was also not, uh, Daniel was also Babylon, if I'm not mistaken. Oh my goodness, bro, you're so, jumping the gun and I love it. Okay, so now we got and, Babylon uh, over here. Mm. Was, so they were definitely divided 
they were definitely divided. Okay, they were divided, because right? They, yeah, because they were not in Jerusalem where the Lord wanted okay. them to be. For sure, for sure. This is this is a biblical example, a picture in the Old Testament. Okay. So Ezra and Nehemiah leave Babylon. They get permission to leave and they go back to rebuild the temple. Okay. Okay. Are they, they are divided from something, right? Yes. Okay. That something is the ground of the city of Jerusalem where the temple mount is supposed to be. Okay. That's where they're divided. Okay. So let's say... Let's just say they start going and they're like, you know what? I really, I really like the food up north. Let's just go up there instead and we'll build the temple up there. Okay. What, bro, is that another, is that another division? Yes, it is. Definitely. Yeah. Now, now you got four places. Yeah. Okay. So the point is, if you go back, if you go back to where God ordained it to be, are you another denomination? No, you're not. Definitely not. Because you are, no. if you're going where, the, where uh, the, uh, the ground that the Lord chose, then you are in that church, you know, of that city. So, but it, yeah, mainly this is Jerusalem. So, Lord yeah. wanted the temple to be built there. So that's the, the proper ground to build the church on. Yeah. Right, right. So it, there's a lot of things that would disqualify you from the proper ground that we're going to hit later. But the point of the, 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 the fact is, the fact is, at least in, from an outward perspective, when you are meeting, when you're meeting with other believers, not taking a name, and you're only taking the description, the church in a certain yes. city, not a name, that's a description. Okay, so Mia and I meet with the church in Munich. Okay, it's not a name. So when you do this, you are not another denomination because you're going back to the original. You're not denominating from something. Okay. So this is, this is a practical example of something that you can share with someone to show them that we are not another denomination, but, but that does not mean that you can't do things that actually make something else the ground, such as making the recovery version the ground, okay? Mm. That would, in fact, make you a denomination, okay? We can get into that later. Nathan, wow. I really, I really want to hear what Nathan has to say because the name of this church is Philadelphia, and so I'd like Nathan to take over now and share with us what exactly that means. Brother, brother Trevor, can I just ask yeah. you a question? Yeah, that bro. verse in Deuteronomy is it six verse four? It's Deuteronomy twelve. It's like the whole chapter. He says it a bunch of times. Twelve. Okay. Deuteronomy 12. Okay, Sorry. It's okay, I bro. Got it. Nathan, take it away, bro. Amen. All right, saints. So um, we've been spending a lot of time, as we have in most of these dive sessions, on um, so far the, the, um, the two, well, so at the beginning, Nathaniel said there's these epistles apply to the churches in 
Asia Minor that they were originally written to by John, who received the revelation from the Lord. But they also refer to these conditions of the church historically throughout the history of the church from that time forward. And that is what we've been talking about mainly to this point. We've been talking about how the Lord has moved historically through the, uh, well, we have two examples today, but there are actually other examples. But two paramount examples is the Moravian Brethren and the British Brethren of the Lord restoring or recovering particularly the aspect of the oneness of the body of Christ actually practiced, not just talked about, not just written about, but actually practiced on the ground in the places where people are using time and space as the basis on which um, to meet and therefore preserve the oneness of the body of Christ. But underlying all of this, there is in fact a condition in which all of these believers have maintained themselves by the grace of God. And it is that condition that I want to talk about. When, you, um, when we began this session, and um, I forget who did the reading today. Helen, was it you or Mia? I can't remember. Whoever did the reading, doesn't matter. But the first line was, and to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia. So what I want to talk about is this word Philadelphia. Um, the word Philadelphia, it, a lot of people from North America immediately will recognize this as being the name of a city in our own country, in the United States. Um, but actually, there's a few ancient cities called Philadelphia. I won't get into the history of them. But the name of that city itself is composed of two Greek words. And the word first is philia. And philia is the love or the affection or the fondness that siblings have for one another. Philia. And then the second part of that, uh, or sorry, philia just means, it just means love or affection, sorry. And it can be the love or affection between friends or anyone. But then the second word, in addition to philia, is adelphos, which means brother in Greek. Uh, so if you have them together, you have Philadelphia, which is the love that brothers have for one another. And this is a very special, very close, very affectionate love that siblings have for one another. And I was looking at a Greek lexicon earlier today and it uses the word fondness. I really like that word. It is the fondness that um, the guy had a sister. I'm just fond of her. I, I just really like her. Um, so Philadelphia, when we talk about Philadelphia, we're talking about a church that is in a, that is in a condition of loving one another, loving the brothers and the sisters. Um, so this is a little bit what, um, what I want to talk about. You know, what's really interesting is the first church that we talked about was Ephesus. And do you remember Ephesus' Ephesus's principal failure? Uh, Helen, were you on that dive session? Uh, you weren't? Have, do you recall reading the... Uh, 
Revelation chapter two recently. Maybe I could ask you a question about it. All right. What was um, what was Ephesus's? What was the Lord's main criticism of Ephesus? They left their first love. They left their first love, right? So there it is. They left the love that they had for God and for the things of God. Well, one of the things of God are the saints of God, the people of God, the church of God. The church in Philadelphia, in a certain sense, reverses Ephesus. Ephesus, even though they had spectacular works and great spiritual discernment, they, they just, their love grew cold. And when your love for God grows cold, it doesn't take long for your love for the brothers and sisters to grow cold too. I speak from experience. Um, so what we, when the Lord, when there is a church in Philadelphia and it receives such praise from the Lord, there's not one criticism uh, of the church there. Um, what we have is a group of saints in a city, the church in that city, the church in Philadelphia, they have managed to reverse the decline of Ephesus such that they love God and they love one another. Um, and um, I want to draw your attention to 1 John 4.21. And I'm going to be talking a lot from 1 John. Um, we have to realize that 1 John is, is actually the first epistle to John. It was written by the same John who wrote Revelation. So when we're, talking, when we're talking about the letters to the churches in Revelation, we have to realize that this book was written by the same person who wrote 1 John. And interestingly, the book of 1 John was most likely, church historians say, it was most likely um, delivered to the church in Ephesus where John lived. So you, have, you can think of the book of 1 John as being a message to the church in Ephesus, okay? So if you go to 1 John 4, 21, um, Helen, since we're with you, could you read this verse for us? And tell us what you think is important about this verse when you're done. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God, love his brother also. Right. So what stands out to you there in that verse? The commandment from God is love God and love his brother. Yeah. Well, it, it starts with the command is to love God. And then it says that whoever loves God, love his brother also. So this is like a, a, a double, this is a cascading this is a cascading love. If you love God, then you have to love your brothers. There happens to be something behind me that I'm gonna grab as a prop. I have this thing called uh, Matroshka. Um, it's a Russian nesting doll. Um, there's a lot of little dolls in here, but if you consider this the love of God, okay? The command to love God and um, Actually, the Lord constantly, in his earthly ministry, the Lord is constantly telling people, love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your brother. The Lord is just constantly reading this command. And here in, in 1 John 4, 21, 
he who loves God loves his brother also, saying, when you love God, and we'll say that this, this out here is the first commandment, love God. When you love God, it should, it must be that you also love your brother. Loving your brother is contained in the reality in loving God. So it's one thing to love God, but if we're truly loving God, we'll find that we will also love our brothers. And this is the double commandment. That's what Augustine said in the fourth century. This is the double commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. Or in the words of John, love God, love your brother. Um, and this is, this is the condition, brothers and sisters, of the church in Philadelphia. The church, the church is simply in a condition of loving one another. Um, I, my goodness, I'm, I, I'm just really struggling for words here, Bastian. Um, how to express this. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to, what I'm going to do for you guys, I'm just going to read a few verses for you. You just, if you're taking notes over there, just jot down these references. I'm going to go faster than, I don't want Trevor to mess with the screen here. I'll just read these for you. Okay. Romans 12:10 says, love one another warmly in brotherly love. Take the lead in showing honor to one another. That's the word, Philadelphia there, if you look it up in Greek. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 9. Now, and this is what Paul is also writing. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for me to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 13, 1. This is a short one. Let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 1.22. Uh, Trevor's catching up. I mean, he's, he's, in fact, he's ahead of me. Since you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth unto unfeigned brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart fervently. So when we're talking about loving one another with brotherly love, we are, this is not a dry doctrine trinal um, thing that is so abstract that we don't feel it. You know, it's easy for me to say, I love this brother, I love brother, or I love all people, or I love all the brothers and sisters in the church life. But what the Lord is doing in his command through Peter in 1 Peter 22 is to love one another from a pure heart fervently. This, brothers and sisters, these, these uh, four verses I just read in the fifth one, which is 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7, which concludes with loving, with brotherly love, and in brotherly love, there is love. In these one, two, three, four, five passages, we have the heartbeat, we have the sensation, we have the feeling of what it is to be in the church in Philadelphia. And like Trevor said, this is not the kind of thing that you have to say. You know, if you have to say that you're in love, if you have to convince yourself that you're in love, you're probably not in love. It doesn't mean you can't say it, but 
the fact is love is a reality that either you're in it or you're not in love. And this brotherly love is fervent and it's warm and it pervades the atmosphere of the true church in Philadelphia. And, um, and, and so anyway, this is, this is, uh, this means that the reality of the church in Philadelphia, we can all be brought into this. We, we can all be brought into this in our personal experience with the Lord, with the brothers and sisters that he has placed us with. Um, but you may be asking, okay, so where does this brotherly love come from? Because clearly the Lord, you know, this is remarkable only in one of the seven churches in Revelation. Um, why is it that Ephesus is not extolled for their brotherly love? And, you know, why is it that instead they're criticized for the lack of their first love? Well, what we have, um, what we have to realize is that the love for the brothers comes out of the love that God has for us and the love that we have for God. Um, there, there's a, a footnote, we mentioned the recovery version. There's an excellent footnote at 2 Peter 1.7. Um, I just want to read. Um, and it says there, on the one hand, there's the divine love, which is agape in Greek. And then it says, this love is nobler than human love. It adorns all the qualities of the Christian life. It is stronger in ability and greater in capacity than human love. Yet a believer who lives by the divine life and partakes of the divine nature can be saturated with the divine love and express it in full. Such a love needs to be developed in brotherly love to govern it and flow in it for the full expression of God, who is this love. So when we enjoy God as love, that gets expressed in brotherly love. And brotherly love is the love that exists between all the brothers in the church life. Um, you know, this, I, I, I just want to do a couple other things. Um, and uh, just maybe you could take us to First Peter chapter two, Trevor. Um, and Mia, why don't you read for us First um, John chapter two, not First Peter chapter two, but First John chapter two. Uh, and start with verse three, Mia. Okay. And in this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Okay, so let me pause here. What are the Lord's commandments, Mia, in this context? Well, to love him and to love one another. That's right. That's right. Okay, keep going with verse four. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in this one. Right. So whoever says that he keep that whoever says that he loves, um, whoever says that he keeps the commandments, but doesn't actually keep the commandments is a liar. So the next verse. Mm -hmm. 
but whoever keeps his word truly in this one the love of god has been perfected in this we know that we are in him right right so whoever keeps his word whoever actually loves god and loves the brothers and the emphasis here in first john is to love the brothers in this the love of god has been perfected and then he skips down um we let's let's uh, read verse seven now. Mm -hmm. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard. Right. So this commandment to love one another is in fact not a new innovation. And this is, the, this is what the Lord was commanding his disciples, love one another. Go back and read the Gospel of John, especially from chapter 13 through chapter 16. It is, you will be surprised how often the Lord gives this loving command to his disciples to love one another and to abide in my love in, in, in commands such as this. So this is, turns out not to be a new commandment. In fact, this is the spirit of the original commandment that was given on Sinai to Moses. This commandment to love one another, in fact, not only is it the characteristic of the church in Philadelphia, but it is the characteristic of the community of God in all of history. It is a condition of loving one another with the love of God. Um. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of skip through a, num a number of verses and, and go to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, so 1 John 3, we're, all of this is in 1 John today. And look at verse 14. Uh, Mia, could you still read that for us? Mm -hmm. We know that we have passed out of death into life. <laughs> because we love the brothers. Right. He who does not love abides in death. Yeah, he who does not love abides in death. So if this is a good way to test your spiritual condition, look at the brothers and sisters around you and just ask yourself in the Lord's presence, do I love them? Lord, I wanna know, am I in life or am I in death? And if you love them, then you know that you've passed out of death and into life. It's very simple. And if you don't love, then you know that you abide in death. That abide there in Greek means remain. You, you're just still stuck in death. But once we love the brothers, or we could even say this, to the degree that we love the, the brothers and sisters, to that degree we have passed out of death into life. Because loving admittedly is a matter of degree. And our love grows, far transcending earthly powers, as the author of a hymn put it. So this love, our love to the Lord and our love to one another grows. And as it grows, we pass out of death into life. And I, I want to point out something here um, in 1 John 3, 14, 16, and 17. Um, this love, in, in, and I want to say this, the church life in Philadelphia is a life that is characterized by a very robust, very full, 
very real, very practical love. Like I said, this is not a theological love. This is not just an empty love where we kind of pat each other on the back and say, yeah, I love you too. This is a, a real deep feeling and actually it entails all three parts of our being. So we've talked before, I think in one of the other dive sessions that I wasn't on, how human beings, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says that we are composed of a spirit, a soul, and a body. And our body has a certain life that is attendant to it. And this is in Greek what is called bios or bios. Our soul is also a certain kind of a life. And in Greek, this is what's called psuche or the life of the soul. And the life of God, which he gives to us and places in our spirit is in Greek, what's called Zoe. Some of you who know Greek also know that Zoe is, is also a scientific term used to describe any kind of, any kind of life of any kind of animal. But the way that the scriptures use it specifically is whenever it refers to God and the life of God, it always refers to Zoe. Now, these three terms occur in 1 John 3, 14, 16, and 17. And it goes like this. Okay, in 14, it says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. If you look in the Greek there, we'll realize that that is the word zoe. We know that we have passed out of death into the life of God because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. And I'll just keep reading. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know, this is what the Lord said in John chapter five or John chapter six. You know, even if you hate him, you murder him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. That Zoe has eternal life abiding in him. In verse 16 the Apostle John, who is addressing the church here in Greek, he makes a turn with the word life. And now he starts using a new Greek word. In this we know love, that he, that is Christ, laid down his life, his psuche, on our behalf. And we ought to lay down our lives, our psuches, on behalf of the brothers, okay? So we know we've passed out of death into Zoe because we love the brothers. And when we love the brothers, we lay down our soul life. We lay down our psychological life, our emotional life, the life of our decision-making, the life of our affection, the life of our thoughts, our considerations, you know, our thoughtful life. We, we lay these down for the brothers and the sisters in the same way that the Lord sacrificed who he was for us, his very soul, his very soul life. That is what we give up in the church life for one another. So the church life is not a cold and distant affair. At least the church life in Philadelphia is not cold and distant. It is the kind of atmosphere where we are just pouring out the depths of who we are 
on one another and are not reserving anything. This is something that I, I have tasted. I have experienced this church life to a degree and, and brothers and sisters, there is nothing sweeter than a church life when people pour out their souls on one another. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. The church in Philadelphia, wherever you practice it, whether it's Munich, whether it's in Ontario, I for, sorry, Helen, I forget which town you're in, in Ontario, Bastian, um, I know you're in Nelspreet. I don't know what city you're in now, Joburg, uh, but ever, whatever, whatever town you're attempting and endeavoring to practice the church life of Philadelphia in, it is this deeply effective life that also will touch even the life of your body. And this is how I'm going to show you. If you come to verse 17, Bastian, read this verse slowly for me, okay? Because I'm going to interrupt you. But okay. Gonna... Uh, but whoever has the li uh, livelihood of the world Okay, I'm going, to stop, I'm going to stop you right there. The livelihood of the world. Just make a note of that, all of you guys. Okay, Boston, keep reading. And sees that his brother has need. Okay. And, shut, and shuts up his affections from him. Okay, so note two words. Need and affections. Okay, keep going. Okay. How does the love of God abide in him? Right. So this word, livelihood of the world, um, I'm going from memory here. I'm going to look it up just in case uh, to make sure I'm using the, the right Greek word here. So this is... Um, uh, chapter... Three verse 17. I should have had this open earlier. Forgive me, everyone. Um, so yeah, 17. Yeah. So whoever has the livelihood of the world here, that word livelihood is Bios. So in, in verse 14, you have the Zoe life of God. In verse 13, you have our own soul life. And then in 17, it says, whoever has the bios of the world, whoever has the livelihood of the world. That means if you, the, the things that attend to us as human beings, we work, we make money. This is the, this is the bios. Whoever has the livelihood of the world and sees that his brother has need and shuts up his affection. How does the love of God even abide in that one? This means that in the proper church life, we're not just concerned whether or not people are reading the Bible enough. We're not just concerned with, you know, what translation of the Bible they're using. We're not concerned about how many Christians gatherings they go to and whether or not they're precisely on time or whether they're reading the Bible the way that you want them to read the Bible. Like all of that is, I mean, 
maybe that has a part to do with the church life, but a big part of the church life has to do with seeing your brother in need. And so if, if we are in a proper church life and there are saints who have genuine needs, and I'm not saying needs that come out of, um, that, that are due to, um, you know, due to unwiseness on their part, but there's a genuine need. It should affect us to the point where we, in the Lord's presence, moved by the very love of God, can address that need because of our affection for them. Our affection here becomes the very affection of Christ, and we help take care of their needs with our own bios, with the own livelihood that we have from the world. So this, to me, these verses, verses 14 through 17, this is, this is the tripartite, this is the body, soul, and spirit church life of the church in Philadelphia. And this is what we need to aspire to. And this should be what we are indeed practicing. If we, do not, if we are not willing to lay down our souls for our, each other or even take care of each other's physical needs, then I have a big question whether or not we're actually in the church in Philadelphia in our actual practice. Um, so saints, I'm just, um, you know, it, it's, it's a bit of a struggle for me to be able to express this. But uh, when the Lord looks at the church in Philadelphia, this is what he sees. He sees this kind of life. When he looks at your life, Helen, when he looks at your life, I'm, I'm like really practical. When he looks at your life with the saints, does he see these three things? Or just does he see two of them? Does he see one of them? Or maybe does he not see any of them? You know what I mean? I, you don't have to answer this question, but I want this to be really particular to everyone watching this. This should be kind of a test. Like we could bring these verses to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, you're walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands and you're in your, in your hand are bright stars. You're illuminating the whole situation. Lord, when you visit me and the saints who are with me in my place, do you see... Do you see Philadelphia, which is full of brotherly love? Or do you see Ephesus, which has no love, which has so little love that the Lord threatens to remove the lampstand out of their place? So um, this is, these are the kind of verses, brothers and sisters, that we really, you know, I don't know. They excite me, number one, because I know what this church life is. And number two, you know, we're on the knife edge, you know, we're like on the tip of the pen, we can fall off in either direction and fall into a situation in which the brotherly love has actually been lost. And in some cases, simply been abandoned. Um, and um, in connection with this point, uh, if you look on the screen, look at verse 13. It says, do not marvel, brothers, if the world hates you. Uh, we're going to see this in some of the upcoming verses where there's the synagogue of Satan, those who call themselves Jews and are not. 
this kind of church life, Satan really, really hates it. And anyone who is under Satan's influence, which can even be ourselves oftentimes, this kind of church life will be very difficult for us to maintain, and we may even hate it. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if when you're not in living union with the God of love, where your inner being reacts against this kind of church life, or when those around you reacts against it. This, the church life that comes out of the love of God, for God himself is love, is expressed as brotherly love, is the kind of thing that it will be hated by some and it will be loved by others. And so this is the kind of thing that the Lord, can, once he opens this door, no one can close it, but people will try. Um, so don't give up the fight, finish your course, you know, keep the faith when it comes to living this kind of church life. Ah, uh, my goodness, there are so many verses that I wanted to cover, but I simply do not have the time. And so I'm going to move on to uh, Nathaniel, who's going to share a little about, a bit about another characteristic of the church in Philadelphia. Yeah, the more you get into Philadelphia, um, it's it's really kind of endless almost bottomless there's so much here completely. yeah really it's, you know actually all of god's economy is pointing toward philadelphia from mm. the from eden to the new jerusalem it's all reflected in this little bit of verses in revelation yeah. so when Nathaniel says you can squeeze every positive thing in the bible into this little epistle to the church in philadelphia it, it all fits here and, yes. and you can unpack the whole thing and what you find in the, it, what you find is Philadelphia. That's, that's right. Why, that's why I have a hard time stopping about this stuff. All right, Nathaniel, I'm going to mute myself. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it, it's absolutely right. And um, the next, the next part is, is um, he's the Lord says you have, I know you have a little power. And so I, I think this is really encouraging to me because um, I don't have a lot of power. Uh, and actually, uh, the older I get, the more limited I, I see that I am. You know, when, I'm, when, I, was, when I was younger, I, I felt pr pretty unlimited. Um, but as I get older, um, I just see more and more my, my limitation. And, and it's easy to kind of wonder you know, especially uh, when you hear kind of what is described here in Philadelphia, you may wonder, is this really possible? Um, you know, we may have experienced various aspects of it, but you realize that this kind of church life costs everything. And it also takes more than one person. Uh, this is, this is not, you know, it's not something you can just do on your own. This is, this is a, a church life of, of, loving the brothers so how does this right. work um and so uh there's just a, a a verse that i've uh that came across uh along this line that i was really encouraged by and can we go to zachariah 410 um trevor thanks and uh let's see bastian can you read that for us 
Yeah, sure. <clears throat> for as despised the day of small things, for these seven, uh, yeah, for these seven rejoice when they see the plummet in the hand of uh, Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of Jehovah running to and fro on the whole earth. So I don't know if you remember from last uh, last um, last week. But when it talks about the eyes and the seven, this is the, the seven eyes, which actually is an Old Testament reference to the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold intensified spirit of God. Mm. But what I appreciated was that this verse begins with this, this statement, who has despised the day of small things? Okay, a lot of times we despise the day of small things but actually the day of small things here is linked with the sevenfold intensified spirit wow. so uh what happens is that actually the church in philadelphia they have a little power um they that what that means is that we just do the best that we can with what we have okay so that means we need to first, we need to see what we have. Um, but the Lord doesn't ask us to do more, more than that. He just asks us to do the best that we can. And he has a provision for us. And that provision is the sevenfold intensified spirit. Now, a lot of times when I hear a sevenfold intensified spirit in my head, I think of sevenfold intensified effort. <laughs> um and so that's true. not the case okay this is not you where you like plug yourself into a battery and you just get sevenfold intensified and you know you just suddenly become an incredibly active christian who's just an amazing person what happens is that you're in your environment and in your environment you can experience the sevenfold intensified spirit Often our environment is the day of small things. Okay. That's like our, my whole day. It's just small things all over the, all the, all the time, but it's in those small things. We can actually experience Christ as the sevenfold intensified spirit, just doing the best that we can with what we have. Okay. We have the Lord's word. We have his name. We have a little power. Okay. It's in that context, it's in that environment that you can have the church life that Nathan was describing, a church life of loving the brothers. Yes, I don't love the brothers, not in myself. The only person I love is myself. Okay, that's just how it works. But the Lord is sevenfold intensified. And the more that I just open to him, the more that I converse with him, the more that I'm real and honest and genuine with him, the more that there's something in me that begins to change. And I can love people that I didn't think I could love before. Um, I can be one with people that I didn't think I could be one with before. Um, this is the work of the sevenfold intensified spirit. So anyway, um, I, I just found that kind of encouraging and i think nathan's going to go on and tell speak briefly about an open door because this is one of the other characteristics of philadelphia when you have 
the church that where the brothers love one another uh, and you have a little power, there's an open door. Right. So remember, we were reading earlier and Nathaniel kind of went into um, detail about what it is um, where it says that he has these ones says the one who has the key of David who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Well, here, that one, the one who has the key of David, it says that I've put an open door in front of you and no one can shut. Well, what is it? Why is it that that Philadelphia gets an open door? And why is it that, um, that Sardis doesn't get an open door? Really, Sardis is a bit of a dead end. What about Thyatira, Pergamus? And we'll see next week. Um, what about um, Laodicea? And even the first week, they were to the point where the Lord was about to remove the test, his own testimony from their place. Philadelphia is in a really unique position of having an open door before them. Keep this in mind, because next week we're going to find out that Christ is actually behind a closed door. Um, for Laodicea, so just keep this in mind, that the Lord has put in front of Philadelphia an open door. Why is it? It's because of these reasons that Nathaniel and I just covered. They love the brothers, which is the fundamental requirement in the Old Testament economy and the New Testament economy. They have a little power. They enjoy the spirit of God in its sevenfold intensified power. They have not denied the Lord's name. Mm. They, they are one, you know, in the New Testament, it says that the church is the body of Christ. And the church is the kingdom of the king. And is the bride of Christ. Well, in this case, the church is one with the one who has the key of David. Mm. Because they, they, by being one with the God of love, stay in a condition of loving God. Therefore, they do not deny him and they keep his name. Therefore, they love the brothers. And that door, I mean, that key, the key of being in this condition simply opens the door of the kingdom of God. And she on the earth, this church, really can pray. You know, the Lord's Prayer that I think a lot of people have been raised praying uh, repeatedly, maybe without ever really thinking too deeply about it. It says, Our Father, who is in the heavens, your name be sanctified, your kingdom come. That's what it says, wow. your kingdom come. Amen. When we pray that, we are doing the kind of thing that, that, that Philadelphia does. They have, an, they have an open door because the Lord says also in chapter 16, the gates of Hades cannot prevail against this church. Mm -hmm. the, the, the door of Philadelphia is open and the gates of Hades are closed because this church is in a condition of being one with the one who holds the key of David and he, they love him and they love the brothers mm -hmm. and this door that is open to them, which is for the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose in their church, in their city is it, 
this church, the saints who are in this condition literally become unstoppable. Uh, I've, um, you know, I just thought I'd share one quick experience. Uh, We were in this place once and we lived there for quite a while. And um, the Lord did impossible things because we loved him and we loved the brothers. In fact, we enjoy, like what I shared with you, um, what I shared with you earlier about, um, about John, first John chapter three, you know, the bios, suke and uh, Zoe, I enjoyed with those saints. And we entered into this living to a certain degree. And when we did, things started happening in our lives and with one another that were fairly unexplainable. Like people who had big problems, relationship problems, life problems, financial problems, they started to get resolved. And they weren't resolved in strange, crazy ways, you know, it wasn't bizarre, but it was just in a, in a certain condition, we had the sense that the Lord had placed in front of us an open door mm. and there was nothing that could close it. Yeah. The door to the Lord's blessing was, was simply open. Mm. And no matter how much the enemy within us or even out from outside of us tries, whatever he tries to do to close the door, and no matter how much the, the gates of Hades try to prevail against us, if we're in the reality of Philadelphia, we simply have an open door. In fact, I was reading something earlier and it says this, the key is in the hand of the head of the church and is not in the hand of those who oppose her. Mm. So this is what it is. When we're in this condition, brothers and sisters, there's an open road ahead of us. Right. The fulfillment of God's purpose, especially in our city, especially with the saints that we're with, is um, it's manifest destiny. In fact, it's already happened. We're just walking into it because the door has been opened by the Mm -hmm. one who has the key of David. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. But it's not to say that we don't get opposition, right, Nathaniel? Because we are in the presence of those at the synagogue of Satan, which you're going to tell us about. That was a segue. Um, <laughs> um, so, so the um, one of the things uh, that is mentioned here, which actually was also mentioned to the church in Smyrna. In verse 9, it says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, those who call themselves Jews and are not, but lie. And then it says, Behold, I will cause them to come and fall prostrate before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Okay, so uh, what we t- if you recall what we talked about, um, Bastian, were you on when we did Smyrna? Yes, brother, no, I was there. Okay, so... Uh, do you remember that there were there were there were some things and what we brought out there was that um, this reference to the synagogue of Satan is referring to the kind of quote unquote Judaizing of Christianity. Yes. And, um, 
there were kind of four things. I don't know. Do you remember any of them that we talked about? Um, brother, actually, I know I wrote them down, but I can't remember off that. Off that. Okay, it's no problem. Um, so the first one was the temple. And so with the, with the problem here is that in the Old Testament, you know, the, the place of worship and the worshiper are two different things. But in the New Testament, the place of worship and the worshiper are one. Because we worship, first of all, in spirit. And so one of the characteristics of uh, kind of a Judaized Christianity is a focus on the outward material temple. Um, we care more for the outward arrangement, the outward organization of, 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 uh, of, of the kind of outward things of worship than we do for our worship of the Lord in spirit. Um, the other thing is the law. So uh, regulations, uh, the law of letters. Um, if, if our focus is more on organization, um, eventually you have to set up rules. It just comes with the territory. Um, so you need, if you're going to have an organization, you need rules. And the other thing is you need a mediatorial class. You need a group of people who can oversee things. So the result is you have many people who don't do anything. They just are, are there, kind of dead. Um, but then you have a group of people who are professionals and they do everything. Um, the thing about Philadelphia is Philadelphia destroys this. So yeah. Philadelphia, because the brothers love one another, there's an app that implies mutuality. There's give and take, like what we're doing right now, you and I are speaking, right? There's something there, you know, it, there, th Philadelphia implies that, uh, we, an atmosphere of mutuality, and an atmosphere of mutuality kills the clergy laity system. It just destroys it. There's no use for it. You don't need it, okay? Because anybody can function. Anybody can speak. Anybody can overflow their enjoyment of Christ. You don't need somebody to come in and be a professional. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, brother. That makes perfect sense. Okay. So... Um, this is the character, one of the characteristics about Philadelphia. And so here it's different than in Smyrna. In Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan is, is a problem. Okay. In Philadelphia, they've destroyed it. It said, because what does he say? I will cause them to come and fall prostrate before your feet. And then it's not an accident that he says, and know that I have loved you. So actually... Wow. One of the antidotes to this kind of organizational uh, system that's very, e it's very easy for to creep in. One of the ways to not have that is we have an atmosphere of mutuality. We have an atmosphere of brotherly love. Okay. Amen. Um, yeah, there's there's more, but I think I think that pretty much. Um, that that's that's good for that. And so, just want to mention uh, three three thing, three other things quickly related to Philadelphia. One is you have kept my word. Okay, 
in order to keep the Lord's word, it doesn't just mean that we need to take what his word says. It also means that on the negative side, we have lots of concepts that need to be dealt with in our mind. We have lots of concepts and lots of opinions which prevent the word from penetrating us. So we, to, to keep the Lord's word actually implies that we are allowing him to renew our mind. You know, Romans 12, 2. Um, can we go there real quick? Maybe, um, Helen, you could, could you read this for us? Do not be fashioned according to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Right. So actually, when our mind is being renewed, we actually are transformed. This is something that will be brought out later. But one of the things about Philadelphia is that... Uh, is we're in the process of not of not just being in this pleasant environment, but we're in actually becoming what we see. And that requires the renewing of our mind. The other thing is you have not denied my name. And when you see that phrase, you have not denied my name, um, think God manifested in the flesh. That's what that means. That means God is being expressed. It means Christ is being expressed. So you have not denied my name means you are expressing Christ. So you have kept my word. We're in the process of being transformed. You have not, through the renewing of the mind, you have not denied my name. We are expressing Christ. And then the last bit, you have kept the word of my endurance. So actually, this is not just, uh, this is actually taking place in an atmosphere of suffering. This is not just happening um, in a vacuum, but uh, this actually links back to Revelation 1.9, where John says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and endurance in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John was a partaker in the endurance in Jesus. So actually, here in to keep the word of his endurance the only way to do that is to enjoy this wonderful person as we enjoy actually endurance is a person okay when we enjoy him we have endurance don't enjoy him no endurance okay so at this point um i'll turn it over to trevor we have a warning I'm so impressed everybody's still here. Uh, I, man, this has been a sesh, hasn't it? Okay, we're going we're gonna to try and we're texting each other, telling each other that we need to speed things up. So don't worry, I'm, I'm going to do this quickly, okay? This was, this was my, um, I really hope you guys get this point. Okay, my point is, and Helen, I need you, I really need you on this one, Helen, okay? Can you read, can you read very quickly verse 11? This is Revelation 3.11. Amen. I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. Okay. So the Lord here is talking corporately to the whole church, that no one take your crown, which is interesting because 
there's only one person in the Bible that knew before they died that they had a crown, and that was Paul. That's 2 Timothy 4.8, okay? And that means that Paul was going to overcome. Okay, does this mean that the entire church will overcome? No, because it actually talks to the overcomers and says, he who overcomes. So basically, the Lord here is saying that you're on the right course. You're going the right way. But, but you can lose it. You can lose it. Okay. So he says, hold fast, hold fast that no one take your crown. Okay. So this is, this part's interesting. I'm going to ask Mia now. Mia, this is the hard question. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to take it easy on Helen here for a second. I'm going back to Helen though. Okay. What do we have? This, this is a, this is a question you uh, hold on just a second. I want to, I want you, I'll give you a second to think about this. Okay. This is really important because a lot of people think we have certain things and then they will fight for certain things. That is not what this verse is talking about. Okay. So what do you think we have that we need to fight for? Hold fast. Um, well, I think just like um, the life of Christ in us and like yeah. the experience okay. of him. Okay, totally. I, actually, I mean, for sure. Amen. Okay. So it's actually what we, what we need to, okay, is it calling on the Lord? Is that what we have? Is it the recovery version with the footnotes? Is it the ministry? Is it, um, you know, actually, it, we know it's not. Because uh, both the brethren groups had Philadelphia, and they didn't have the ministry. And they didn't have prayer reading. And they didn't have calling on the Lord. They didn't have all these things, but they still had Philadelphia. Okay. But oftentimes what we do is we fight for these things, okay? If somebody's, if somebody's using a King James Version, oh my gosh, what are you doing in 1611? Don't you know what we have now, okay? And we start fighting for these things. And actually, we make them ordinances. And actually, if you watch the conference this last weekend, we can create a culture that is not Christ. It's not reality okay so what we actually need to fight for is reality the reality of the brothers loving each other okay the reality of this being done on the ground of oneness and the only way you can keep the ground of oneness is by loving one another okay honestly so it's it kind of it goes hand in hand i you can't keep the oneness and then, you know, actually that's what happened to the brethren, right? They just started fighting and they started splitting. So they didn't keep the brotherly love. They lost Philadelphia. Okay, this is, this is an experience that I had um, early on. I came into what we call the church life. And this is something I'm going to hit on here for a second. Helen, 
when did you come into the church life? Two years ago, specifically January on campus. Well, technically in, in May when I start to meet more yeah. with the Saints in Hamilton. Yeah, I mean, that's dope. Okay, so this is, this is the thing. I, I met a brother, actually, right before I moved to Germany. I came here a few times, and I, I was touched so deeply by his response because this brother was clear on this point. And I asked him, you know, like we all do, we all greet each other. Oh, are you a church kid? Did you grow up in the church life? When did you meet the brothers in the church life? Okay, I understand that we do all these things to communicate with each other, okay? But, but, I asked this brother this, and he was, he was probably in his late 60s. And I, we, were, we, were in, we were in Munich, and, and I hadn't moved here yet. And I just asked him, when did, when did you come in the church life? And his response still echoes in me to this day. And he said, well, brother, I met the saints in 1974, but only the Lord knows how many of those days counted as being in the church life. Okay. That was incredible. And I sat there and I was like, whoa. Like this, this brother knows, this brother really knows that if you are not in the reality, which is Christ, as the truth, which becomes our genuineness and our sincerity, in which is the way God wants those, he, he wants worship done by these people. Okay, this brother knew that most of those days he was not in the reality. So the Lord is not going to count it. Just because you meet with people on the ground of oneness and you meet with people who talk about Philadelphia, okay, does not mean that you are. And so this is a warning to all of us personally. Personally, we might be in the best place to overcome we might be in the best position to overcome and that's what the lord's saying hold fast to what you have that no one take your crown so this is this is incredible because we don't we do not want um we do not want to lose the crown we want the reality of philadelphia in in ourselves and we shouldn't worry about everybody else around us Am I turning into Laodicea, which we're going to totally smash next week, okay? Am I turning into Laodicea? Do I think I'm fine? Am I totally lukewarm? Is the, is the Lord knocking at my door? You know, we're going to hit all these things, okay? There's another aspect of this. Um, and this, is, this was my experience when I came in because I was blown away by all the truth. I was like, man, the truth is incredible here. Mia, can you can you read? Uh, this is Ephesians three four. Are you are you not muted? Sorry, are you, okay, there. Sorry, my bad. Okay, um, by which in reading it you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. 
Okay, this is in, this is really interesting because Paul's writing to Ephesus, and he said, "By reading it, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. You you can understand it in your mind." Okay, what I'm saying. But in chapter one, verse seventeen and eighteen, can you can you read these? Mm -hmm. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the full knowledge of Him, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Okay, so Paul Paul is writing this epistle to, to Ephesus, but what he's wanting, what he's wanting is that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would actually see the vision. Okay, it's not that you just understand it. We have to be desperate. We have to be desperate to see it with the eyes of our heart, that we would be enlightened, okay? This is what Paul's desire is. Not just that you'd understand it and walk away and be like, oh yeah, okay, I got it. Sure, I'm supposed to do that, fantastic. But actually that it would become a part of us, that it would be infused into us, okay? So what what I experienced when I was, when I was at, you know, I'll just say it, when I was at the training in Anaheim, what I experienced was I'm sitting there and I understood almost everything that they were saying. I could, I could understand it in my mind. But after a while, I started to realize I am not in it. I'm not in it. And this desire within me just started to rise that it's like, okay, I'm tired of all the cool truth. I'm tired of it. Okay. I really want to be in it. It's like looking at this amazing picture and, and I want, I don't want to just look at the picture and admire it and think it's so cool. I want to get into the, I want to be a part of the picture. Okay. And so I started to pray desperately to the Lord, Lord, I want to get into God's economy. I don't want to talk about it. I'm tired of talking about it. You have to make me a person in God's economy. Okay. So when people meet me, when people meet me, they actually touch God's economy. And so what's, and I'm not there. I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm, I'm still pursuing with all of you. But one, one brother explained it to me this way. He's like, you want a vision? God's economy is like this Grand Canyon, like panoramic view. It's incredible. But it's hard to really grasp the Grand Canyon when you go. It's just so big. You can't grasp it. And so he said, you got to take a telephoto lens and you just got to zoom into certain canyons and certain points and you start taking these pictures and these pictures get infused into your heart. They become a part of you. And eventually, eventually it makes up the entire picture. And eventually when people touch you, they see the Grand Canyon. Okay. So this, this is how you get a vision. This is how you get a vision. You get a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And this is when we, this is when we become what we're talking about. 
It's not to do something. It's to become something. Okay. I just want to let every single church kid know you were not born in the church life. That is, that is like a Christian saying, I was born a Christian. There is a reality. There is another realm that we need to get into called the church life. It's the reality of the church life. That is Philadelphia. Nathaniel is a church kid. He was not born into the church life. Okay. So this is, this is my, this is my uh, longing personally. It's actually the thing, although Paul was yearning for Ephesus to see this, they didn't see it because they lost their first love. They didn't see it. But the thing is, we still get to read it and we still enter into Paul's burden. And that's what we're aiming for. That's what we're looking for and seeking for. Okay. At this point, I just, I, I could say a lot more, but we need to move on. And I'm handing it off to Nathaniel. And it's the relationship of the church of Philadelphia in bringing the Lord back. Once we get into that reality. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, thank you. Let's, maybe we can go back to Revelation uh, 3. And we're going to look at verses 10 and 13, 10 through 13. Um, and that's kind of be, going to be our focus uh, from here on out. Um, notice, let's see, um, maybe, Mia, can you read um, verse 10 saying, it says, because you, yeah, just read verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my endurance. I also will keep you out of the hour of trial, which is about to come on the whole inhabited earth to try them who dwell on the earth. Right. So um, this is quite a verse because it indicates that, that, so the hour of trial here refers to the great tribulation. And so it indicates that um, to those, those who overcome uh, will be kept out of the, out of the great tribulation. Um, so there's some indication here, and then and also in verse 11, it says, I come quickly, hold fast what you have that no one take your crown. So there's an indication here of, of the Lord's coming. Um, but the overcomers in Philadelphia are a little bit different than the overcomers in all the other churches. Um, in, in the other churches, they all had degradation to contend with right? They all had something, there was some, there was degradation within that particular church that they had to overcome. And if they did, they received a reward. And so with all of the other churches, uh, they, the rewards are significant. They really are involved in very significant things, ruling with Christ, having the white garments, being confessed before the father, eating the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, so many things, very, very significant. But there's something special about Philadelphia. Uh, the overcomers in Philadelphia, they don't just overcome degradation. They, uh, in a positive sense, they actually consummate the divine economy. Uh, the way they do that, okay, we have to realize Philadelphia is an is is uh, the atmosphere 
uh, that we're describing, you know, in the outward practical church life, they have the word, they're not denying the Lord's name, and they have brotherly love, okay? That's what we see outwardly. But there's something happening to the overcomers in Philadelphia. There's something happening inwardly, something intrinsic. They're, the reality is being constituted into their being. So what we see outwardly in Philadelphia is actually it's a manifestation of what's going on inwardly in at least some of the <clears throat> some of the believers. So it's not just loving the brothers. It's not just keeping the word and not denying his name. There's something that has to happen in us inwardly where we are actually becoming what we see. There's this, it, it, to me, I, I don't know, I was really, um, I guess you could say I was kind of convicted by this because I realized um, it's not just about being in a pleasant outward church life. Something has to be taking place inwardly in my being. You know, in the church in Thyatira, it says, the Lord is the one who searches the inward parts and the hearts. So the Lord knows what's happening in us. He knows how much the reality of the kingdom we have. He knows how much the reality of the body we have. Uh, this all has to take place in an outward practical church life. But we shouldn't expect that just by being in an outward church life where we have these kinds of wonderful activities that that by itself means that this is happening to us in order for this to happen to us we have to be open to the lord to actually allow him to constitute the vision of his economy into us you know, sometimes I think there's this thought that, you know, I can just take this wonderful truth and I can just hand it to Mia. You know, it's like, Mia, here, this is a wonderful truth. Just take it. Um, but actually, God's economy doesn't work that way. If you remember, Christ is a peg who's driven into the Father and there are vessels that are hanging on him. And those vessels are not only for enjoying Christ, but they're for ministering Christ. The way God's economy works is he works himself into us. And then through us, he imparts something into others. He doesn't work in any other way. So in other words, he always needs a vessel. He, always, he doesn't need instruments. He needs vessels. He needs people who will contain him, express him, represent him, and speak him. And they speak what they have become. They don't merely speak what they know. That's, that's Philadelphia. Philadelphia, you have pillars, and we'll, we'll touch on this in a second. Um, you have people who have actually become what they see, and they're ministering not just what they know, but they're ministering their very being. 
They don't just love the brothers because they know they should do that. They love the brothers because they themselves are the love of God. God as love has been constituted into their being. So it's, it's impossible for them to not love the brothers. They, they don't deny the Lord's name because he has been wrought, his name, that is his person, has been wrought into their being. They can't, they can't deny the Lord's name because to do so would be to deny who they are. To keep the Lord's word means that the Lord's word inhabits them and dwells them. So there's no, there's no way that they can't keep the Lord's word. They've been renewed. They've been transformed. They're part of God's building. So I, I hope it's clear the overcomers in Philadelphia, they're not just in an outward church life. They're not just, and I appreciated what Trevor said. I still remember the moment when I realized I, that what I had grown up in, while I appreciated it, I was facing a crossroads where either I could just I could just have the framework or I could have the the diamond. I could have the reality of it. And I had to make a choice. Did I want to take the way of the framework or the way of the reality? And you know to take the way of the reality is not cheap because it costs everything that we are. But that's the call to the overcomers in Philadelphia. They are the only ones. They consummate God's economy. They actually become the new Jerusalem. They become what they, what they are speaking. They speak what they are. That's, those are the overcomers in Philadelphia, and that is why they bring the Lord back. They bring the Lord back because out of all the other churches, the overcomers in Philadelphia are the ones who compel the Lord to return because in Philadelphia, there's a group of overcomers who have, who have made themselves ready. There is a measure of reality constituted into them that is so precious and so compelling and so attracting that the Lord has no choice but to come back. So that's the call to the overcomers in Philadelphia. And now um, I believe we have a special, we have a, a, a treat. Guillaume is going to talk to us about being a pillar. Hi, is, is the sound okay? <laughs> Yeah, loud and clear. It is. Okay. Well, amen. Thanks, Nathaniel. It's really good to be back. I don't, I've been away for so long. I'm realizing this, looking at your faces. Um, amen. I hope everyone is doing okay. I hope everyone is enjoying what the brothers have just shared up until now. I've been joining in for the last few minutes and I've been really infused um, with faith. And I'll just, I'll just like to uh, very briefly just uh, follow up on what has been said and just echo what has already been said. Um, okay, how about we read um, uh, Helen? 
are you okay to read a verse uh, for me? I'd like for you to read uh, verse 12 up until the second comma where it says, uh, my God. He who overcomes him, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall by no means go out anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Amen. Hallelujah. I really enjoy this. I really enjoy the part on the reward. Um, and I think um, Trevor mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, there's a principle. Uh, the principle is that you're not getting something in the future that differs, that's different, that's not correlated to what you are enjoying today. What you, are, what you have today. Um, so here the Lord says, I will make you a pillar. And I have a burden about this point. And it's just basically following up on what the brothers have just said to us that have really impressed me, that I have this prayer uh, before the Lord for myself uh, and for all of us and for all the saints uh, that we would be made pillars in the temple of God. And so there's a proverb. Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It's Proverbs 29, uh, 18, that says that when, when there is no vision, when people have no vision, they cast off restraints. Um, they could be loose. They can be running wild. They, they can be wandering around. They, they don't know where they're going. They don't know what life is about they have no purpose um and so we just talked about the church life we just talked about god's economy and so i have a question for example for all of us where where do we fit in what's our what's our part in god's economy what is our contribution to god's economy what is my family life in relation to god's economy i need to Consider before the Lord, and that may change over time. We all have a measure that we have received from the Lord. We all have a portion of Christ that is absolutely indispensable for the building up of the body. And I need to ask the Lord, Lord, where do I fit in? What is my part? I want to contribute. And so, you know, I don't know what your digital life is about. I don't know what you guys look at every day uh, on your Facebook feeds, on your Instagram, on, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Uh, you probably see a lot of images, uh, a lot of nice stories, uh, different successes professionally, all kinds of things are, are right in front of your eyes, pulling you maybe in different directions and you're confused, you know, should I pursue this? Should I be engaged in that more? Um, you know, it, it's just hard. Today, the, the age we live in, especially for the younger ones, it's difficult. We're very connected. We bombarded all the time with different thoughts, different philosophies, different things uh, telling us, come and pursue, come in, give us your time. And so I hope and I pray, Lord, make us pillars. We'd like to become unshakable. 
we'd like to be built in, to be in the reality of the church life, exactly like the brothers have just shared. And so, for example, for example, uh, is Brother Ray still with us or he, he left the building? <laughs> he, he, yeah, he had to go. Okay, okay, wonderful. So I'll use Brother Ray as an illustration. I really like Brother Ray. I really like him. I like to be with him. I'd like to listen to him. Uh, I just, I just love Brother Ray. Okay, and don't get me wrong uh, with what I'm about to say, and, and maybe I'll just explain. Uh, but if Brother Ray was to leave the church life, he was to just leave. It wouldn't matter at all. It wouldn't make any difference in my pursuit of the Lord none. I, I wouldn't be affected by it. The brother who brought me into the church life, I love him so much. He's, he's a father to me. If he was to leave, he wouldn't change a thing. Why? Because we have seen something. We, we belong here. We are being made pillars in the temple of God. That is we are built, being built into God. You cannot go out anymore. You cannot go anywhere else. My life, this is my life. This is why I live. This is the purpose of everything that I do. And so if we consider what is our goal, what is our goal? Well, you know, you can say God's economy or you can say the new Jerusalem. And that's wonderful, but it's maybe too vague. We need to consider before the Lord, where do I fit in? How can I contribute? And so we don't do this by willpower. We don't do this like, yes, you know, I, I agree with this. I want to be the new Jerusalem. I want to be a pillar. And so I'll do this. No, no, this does not work. But we exercise our will to say, Lord, amen. I want to be part of this. I want to become a pillar. And so I think it's very easy oftentimes, even when we listen to such a fellowship today or the conference we had for those who attended last weekend or the university conference on the tree of life to, to move on to the next thing, to not take the time to bring these matters to the Lord and to pray about it. Lord, the tree of life, how wonderful. I want every morning, I want you to draw me to eat of the tree of life. I want to even to become a little tree of life. I want to be able to supply others through my eating and enjoying of you. The new man we just talked about last weekend, Lord Jesus, we want to be the new man. Give us all the experiences that we need that we may become the reality of this new man. Here we talk about Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. Lord, infuse us with what you are, that we may become love, like Nathaniel just said, that we may become the reality of all these things. So I pray that we will be built into this thing, that we would not go out anymore. And it doesn't matter. Okay. I'll explain what I mentioned earlier. If Brother Ray was to leave, I would pray very much to the Lord 
And maybe if I had the green light from the Lord, I will call my brother up and, and fellowship with him and maybe pray with him. It matters to me tremendously that we can all pursue together and run the race. But another aspect of this is it doesn't matter. I'm not here because I really enjoy Trevor's way of speaking or I enjoy Nathaniel or Nathan's portion. No, we are all here because we love the Lord and we want to be built into the building of God. And here the Lord says, you will be built into the temple of my God. He doesn't say the temple of God. He said the temple of my God. So this one, this man, Jesus, he knows what it is to live the human life. He knows what it is to pass through all the things that we are passing through, that we may become part of the building. And so I pray that we will just have this unshakable thing in our being from Genesis 28, where we first talk about a pillar up until up to um, Revelation, there's this thread about becoming a pillar. And there's a promise made to Pergamos, the church in Pergamos, that is, I will make you, I will give you a white stone and to eat of the hidden manna. So that's the way to become a pillar. That is, we eat the Lord. We enjoy the Lord, and that is for our transformation, eventually leading up to our building up. And so I think we all know about Noah. Noah built the ark, and Noah probably received a lot of help from others to build the ark, but they were not in the ark. And so we want to be in the church life, that is meeting with one another, fellowshipping together, going to the meetings, Yet we want to be in the reality as Trevor really marvelously you know, talked about it. We want to be part of it. And so if you're like me, okay, I'll conclude with this. Sorry, I'm being too long. Okay, if you're like me, you're very timid. Okay, I'm a timid person. I'm a very shy person. It, it costs me a lot to come on a dive session uh, because I'm just not, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just fearful. Like Jeremiah, I was so encouraged last summer. I don't know if you listened to the messages on Jeremiah, because Jeremiah was also a timid and fearful person, perhaps. Because when the Lord came to him and told him, okay, you will speak for me. Uh, I will make you a prophet to the nations. He said, alas, Lord Jehovah, I cannot do this. I don't know how to speak, for I am a youth. Okay, and Jehovah replied, don't say you are a youth and wherever I will send you, you will go and whatever I command you, you will speak. So we have a little power, just a little bit. We don't have much, I confess that, but we love the Lord and we have the word and we have these times of fellowship and now our responsibility is to speak these things to our loved ones, our family members perhaps, our colleagues, our classmates, to people in a very simple way so that we could just be more and more brought into the reality of these things and that we could be constituted pillars in the temple of God. And so anyways,
I don't know if you got anything out of that, out of what I've just said. I just, I'm just, I'm just so burdened that we would not be doing the church life as an activity, as if you were going, you know, practicing some kind of sport or getting engaged in, in another activity, but this is our life. And if your goal is to be part of this, then everything else falls into place and you have an anchor to go back to when things become maybe difficult, maybe disheartening, maybe a little bit complicated. We live for this. We are in this together. And I'm so glad that we can pursue the Lord and that we can be under the infusing of faith and that we could be produced as pillars in the temple of God. Um, okay, I don't know. Yeah, amen. I have a burden to drill this further, but probably it's enough for today. Um, so I'll pass it on to my dear brother, Nathan, that will continue to talk about something too awesome, too great, uh, the New Jerusalem. <clears throat> yeah, but before we get to that, thank you, Guillaume. It is very good to see your face again and to hear your voice. Um, uh, before we um, go to the, the very last point, um, in the background, we were kind of chatting about something else, and we want to put it on screen where it is right now. <clears throat> and I'm going to read it. It's about the point of, of the vision and the point of being faithful to the vision that we've seen. We're not really, you know, today we've been, we've mentioned a lot of names. We've mentioned uh, Count Zinzendorf. We mentioned John Nelson Darby. We mentioned uh, Anthony Norris Groves. Um, Brother Watchman Nee, Brother Witness Lee. Um, in past sessions, we've talked about um, John Calvin. We've talked about uh, Martin Luther. On some of the earlier dive sessions, I spent a lot of time with people like Origen and the Cappadocian Fathers and early Christ Christian history. But really what all of these people, they are all seers. They've all seen something. They've seen, um, they've seen a vision. It, it's not, it, it's not a, a, a supernatural vision that you get, like you, you know, you're walking along to university one day and then you see this vision in the sky. No, this is the kind of vision that emerges from our time with the Lord, our time in the word, reading spiritual books, our time with the church life. And this eventually can crystallize into a vision. And it's the vision that we're faithful to. It's not the people who have seen the vision. That's not what we're faithful to. We're faithful mm -hmm. to the vision itself. And so mm -hmm. I want to read this quote here, and this is from <clears throat> Brother Witness Lee. It says, I would like to relate to you one fact. It is the Lord's mercy that he has revealed to me this, the vision. I advise you not to follow me but to follow this vision, mm -hmm. which Brother Nee and all the servants of the Lord that I just mentioned throughout the ages have left to us in which I have handed to you. This is indeed the vision that extends from the first scene of Adam to the last scene of the new Jerusalem. All spiritual things are one. There's one God, one Lord, one spirit, one church, one body, one testimony, 
one way, one flow, and one work. So when we talk about the vision, it is the vision to which we're faithful because it is like uh, the Apostle Paul said, I think it's in Acts um, 26, 19. I can't recall for sure. Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This is the vision that we're talking about today. <coughs> in this quote, it talks about <coughs> the final scene of the Bible and the final scene of all time, the new Jerusalem, which is even after the present earth and the present heaven. In the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be the new Jerusalem. <clears throat> but I want to just call your attention to this as we conclude this dive session today. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, it says here, um, the reward to the overcomers, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which descends out of heaven from God. <clears throat> and my new name. Um, you know, earlier we talked about <clears throat> the church in Philadelphia, the overcomers in it, did not deny the Lord's name. Guillaume made this really dynamite point that the reason we can't deny the name is because in a certain sense, <clears throat> we have become the name. We have become what God is in this aspect to the point that we, we become something that is so akin to God, that is so close to what he is, that he puts his name on us. This is not the name on it like a label saying this thing belongs to me. This is the name on it, meaning that you have become what I am. You did not deny my name. Indeed, you took, your, you took my name upon yourself. And so as a reward, I will give you what you've already been enjoying. I will just give it to you in the highest degree. I will give you my very name. And this is the answer to the Lord's prayer in John 17, when the Lord asked that the, that the saints of the body of Christ of the church that they would be recipients and enjoyers of the Father's name. And then it also says, I will write upon him, that is the overcomer in Philadelphia, the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem. So this is really the city of, the city of New Jerusalem, we could just say, is just another name for Philadelphia. The, 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 church and brother, uh, the church of brotherly love, the church in which God, God's essence becomes the essence of the church life. Yeah, on the one hand, you can call it Philadelphia. On the other hand, you just call it what it is. It's the new Jerusalem. And when we fully become that, when we attain that, when we enjoy that, when we embody that, when we see that vision and we walk in that vision, we become what we see. We, we just become the thing itself. And as those who have fallen in love with our dear bridegroom, who love our God to the extent that we marry him 
he calls us the new Jerusalem, which in chapter 21 of Revelation is the bride adorned for her husband, descending out of heaven from my God. And then at the end, and my new name. Um, I'm not going to go into that right now. I just want to say, just want to really reiterate the points in conclusion that the brothers have concluded with. Um, that, you know, brothers and sisters, this path that we're traveling, it is not an easy path, but it is a worthwhile path. And, um, you know, I long for this with, with every, with every part of my being, you know, this, this, this church life, not just the church life, but to become the holy city of God, to have the name of God on me, not just with me, but all those who love the Lord's appearing, all of us together becoming this, fighting for this, the gates of Hades not being able to prevail against it, us becoming it against all odds and becoming obedient to the vision of it. <clears throat> you know, I, I would just by faith join myself to what Guillaume said that, and what Trevor said is, it's the vision, it's the vision I'm interested in. And I will treasure anyone with that vision. And I will have the church life with anyone who has that vision. Yeah. The, the particulars I don't care about. I really don't care about. You know, I'm fine to disagree with people about minor points. It just does not bother me. There's so much in the Christian faith, which is really not worth squabbling over, certainly not worth dividing over. And it's that vision to which I aspire to be obedient. And it's that fight that I aspire to fight. It's that race that I wish to endure, to run to the end so that I can be saved together with you all, together with my fellow runners.